ladies and gentlemen, we're back with Real Deal Talk. Uh, yeah. So I've been doing the sound lately. People are actually, somebody commented last week, they're so excited I'm doing more of my sound. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, we're here today with Brian Tenney. My guy right here, I met uh, through Awaken Church, as you could probably imagine. A lot of my guests are coming from Awaken, from the community. And uh, he was actually ran into each other at a party recently. And the way I'm doing it, you know, I have a long list of guests that's like hundreds of people. And then when uh, I get a nudge uh, that it's their time, I can just feel it, right? So I run into Brian at, the, at a party and he says, hey, dude, I need a mattress. I says, all right, get in my store. So he comes in the following week. And um, of course, I set him up with a ridiculously crazy zero gravity, double dual action, uh, vi vibrating sleep system. <laughs> You're excited, huh? Very. He's taking delivery tomorrow. Let's go. Let's go. He's taking delivery tomorrow. And then while he's here, um, I, I guess we just got on the topic of like, like, what do you do, by the way? And I'm like, yeah. and he's like, well, you know, he's like, I kind of I got a little bit of a history. I'm like, what, what do you mean by that? And he starts telling me this history. And uh, sum up what you just did in like, give me a, a 30 second one liner sum up. And, the, and I'm going to plant the seed, folks, because I, I need to stick around for this. Because if you think you've gone through some stuff in your life and you're like, you know, like your, your trials and tribulations in your life and you're like kind of like feeling sorry for yourself or, oh, I have it rougher than everywhere else or everybody else. Listen to this sum up and then you're going to want to stick around and realize that God is a redeemer and, uh, and, <laughs> and, and redemption is a thing. It like, it's real. So yeah. go ahead and sum it. Give me that sum up that you just yeah, did. Yeah, sure. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, uh, I like. I, so I was telling JD, I grew up as a as a liar and a thief and a forger and a drug addict and a uh, a sociopath. It was bordering on psychopathy. Um, I was telling him my my parents had me tested twice to figure out what the hell was going on with me, and I met God in a really dramatic way, facing life in prison for the second time in seven years. So in '96, I was facing life in state prison, and in 2003, I was facing life in federal prison. Okay, so that's it. That's the teaser you're going to get right there. <laughs> Did you hear that? Like, I want to dig already, Let's but we're go. not digging yet. All okay, right. so hold on. First, we're going to get a word from our sponsor, and that also is me and my wife, Rachel, uh, with our company, Real Deal Sleep, uh, which is actually how Brian ended up here, kind of indirectly, and came in for a mattress, and I heard his story. I said, all right, you're coming in, so booked him two weeks later. He's here in front of me. Uh, we're about to dig dig deep into his story, and people are going to be people going to be blown away by this one, man. I'm just telling you. But anyway, Real Deal Sleep. Um, if you want to support the show uh, financially, Real Deal Sleep pays the bills around here. So, um, first of all, if you're watching the show, or for those who are watching and listening, I can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart. You have no idea how much it means to me when people DM me, text me, um, pull me over, like wherever I'm going, tell me they've made it that they've been inspired by the show. I'm getting people are coming up to me in the gym, like big meat heads that are like dude i love the show they're inspired i can't thank you enough it's just uh, knowing that around the clock that this show is making an impact and a difference uh, is all means everything in the world to me and it drives me it gets me up in the morning and uh, makes me continue doing what i want getting me wanting to do what i want uh, every day and just being f completely fulfilled by it so i can't thank you enough so share the show uh write a review if you can um 
give me feedback, give us feedback, give my guests feedback, because my guests, I can't, nothing's better than when my guest sends me a DM of a screenshot of somebody that sent him a, a text message saying, you, you know, your story changed my life, I'm now getting off this medication, or I'm now um, going into recovery, or whatever it is, you know, send them, if it's if we're inspiring you in some way, let us know about it, because that's what keeps us going, and so, and then if you want to support the show, once again, realdealsleep.com, you can come in, book an appointment with me, I can set you up with a killer sleep system, or you, I have mattresses that are a couple hundred bucks. I can service anybody, guest beds, kids' beds, pillows, sheets, mattress protectors, you name it. We've got it. Real deal sleep, ladies and gentlemen. So there you go. There's our, there's my plug, all right? Got to uh, pay the and, bills. And I, you've got to pay the bills around here. Uh, mom ain't paying the bills anymore. That's right. Seriously. So anyway, uh, here we are back with Brian Tinney. All right, Brian, here we go, dude. Let's dig into this. I can't wait for this, sure. man. This is going to be crazy. And I love the – and I'm making kind of light of your – story because you are because you're like kind of laughing about it yeah which is that's the crazy part to me is that like the things that he told me and he's just kind of like talking about it like it's nonchalant but brian that's part of healing right yeah that's part of getting through your journey is being able to talk about it yeah it can't be like if you're not over it you can't get through it like yeah yeah and you're not going to actually you know form into who you were you know, designed to be and why you were put here, like the, the impact you're supposed, because we're all supposed to make an impact. Yeah. Like that's the name of the game here. And uh, I made an impact before I got saved, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, and now that, uh, you know, now that I have a different purpose, I'm making a different impact. That's right. Yeah. So, all right. So let's go back. Born and raised. Where, where were you born and raised? Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Yeah. Florida. Florida. Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. All right. So talk to me about childhood. What was going on there? You said you were very early on diagnosed yeah. with stuff. and Yeah. my uh, So my dad worked out of the country. He worked in South America and he would be gone for weeks or months at a time. Uh, my mom was somewhat around uh, and I mean, it was the early seventies, right? So we just kind of did what we wanted. I mean, we, we left the house at, or I left the house early in the morning, would come back at night just running around barefoot, kind of doing my own thing and kind of always been on my own, a bit of a loner. I've got brothers and sisters, um, but uh, didn't really grow up in relationship with my folks. Um, my dad, you know, he did the best he could. Um, he worked hard. He provided for the family, uh, but he, he came out like his dad was an absolute nightmare. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah. And he was abusive and um, you know, they, they ran his mother out of town and, told him she was dead he didn't find out till he was 50 that his mom was alive what yeah yeah so just just the all kinds of nonsense going on in his childhood and abuse and uh so he did the best he could right like yeah. he didn't know how to be a dad but he he knew that he had to provide so he worked his ass off to provide and and you know almost killed himself trying to provide for the family did you say they, they ran his mother out of town yeah what does in that the, mean so he grew up in this little town outside of chicago spring grove illinois yeah, bring, and bring uh, the mic in. There you yeah go. There so go. in spring grove illinois and uh his dad and his grandmother when when him and his sister were really young like it was just a little town and they spread rumors about her and said a bunch of nonsense about her and and ran her out of town like divorced her and said goodbye and then told my dad and his sister that she was dead told him she had died and he grew up his whole life and and uh didn't know she was alive like his dad uh his dad was a bit of an alcoholic and um you know i i it's funny because my 
oldest daughter just brought me a copy of my grandfather's obituary because he became a Franciscan brother. And it talked about how much he loved to drink and he was a little bit abusive and it's probably what killed him. And it's like, yeah, well, no kidding. He was a big jerk. Uh, and he was a jerk to my dad. And, and uh, you know, he was, when he would come to visit, it was, you know, just, uh, he would not terrorize the family, but everybody knew that Grandpa Frank was not somebody you've screwed with. And uh, so, so yeah, so they ran her out of town. He, he grew up an orphan, basically. And uh, so he didn't, like, he never learned yeah. how to be anything close to a dad. Um, he's, you know, was very introverted, much like me. Um, not quite... Um, not quite as cold hearted as I was, yeah. like, but, but he, he did the best he could, but I grew, you know, we grew up, uh, kind of without a dad and, yep. and then I, you know, but I was always, I was always having a good time. Uh, I was always pretty bold and, um, I don't, I never really have processed fear like other people do. Um, I'm more calculated. And so if I thought I could get away with something, you know, X percent of the time. And then if I wouldn't get away with it, what were the consequences? And so then it's like, well, consequences aren't going to be very much because I'm a little kid. So might as well just do the thing. So, yeah. uh, oh. you know, I was, I was like riddled with ADD, couldn't sit still. Um, and started, started cutting school at a really young age. Like I was skipping first grade. And so we would have to ride our bikes or walk to school and my, my brother and sister, brothers and sisters would go and I would turn around and head back to the house, sneak into the garage, grab a fishing pole, go across the street and do some fishing and eat my lunch. And mom was out doing her thing and dad was out of the country. So who cares? And what'd your dad do? What was he traveling for? He sold, uh, he worked for OMC corporation. He sold, um, either. He was in the CIA and a spy, or he sold uh, outboard motors into South America. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the two, because when he was, when we were kids, he was in the Navy, he was in cryptography, mm. and then he learned Russian and Spanish, and then he got out of the service and was I into South America when all the, uh -huh. all the coups were happening and all that stuff was happening down there. And he never talked about what he did. He never talked about, um, his time in the service. He never talked about what he did with OMC, OMC. Uh, so it, when I got a little bit older, I was talking to my brother, like we started looking around when he was in South America and all these coups were happening. And then all of a sudden we just had to get out of Florida and we left Florida and headed to Missouri to Branson, Missouri, this little tiny nothing town, uh, in 79. And, uh, he was, so he either sold boat motors into South America yeah, so, or he was in the CIA. So I can tell you right now, he didn't sell outboard motors. To yeah, he might, he might not have. <laughs> I mean, he might not have. I mean, it, it, all the other stuff of him going to South America at the exact, exact same time as the coups, but then having to leave Florida. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think a boat manufacturer was coming after you for the motors or something. No, we were told it was for health reasons. Like, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh -huh. Wow. Yeah. So, but we, you know, we were, um, I remember as a kid, um, you know, my, my toes kind of pointed in or I walked with my toes kind of pointed in and my dad said I was pigeon toed. So yeah. he got me the four gump braces, the, the steel braces with the black shoes. And no this, way. Yeah. Expected me to wear those to school. So that didn't happen. Uh, you know, I put those near a tree and walked off and I was cutting school cause you know, 
school was slow and they expected you to sit still and when you didn't they had a hard time with it so it was just easier not to go yeah um and uh you know there was a neighbor kid next door uh timmy vaughn's one of the only names i can ever remember and and uh me and that kid used to he was a little younger and we used to run around and get into trouble a little bit and uh we got uh timmy and i got put in handcuffs when we were five or six we had uh, i'd taken the neighbor's boat so there's a canal across the street from where we lived at this yeah. cul-de-sac and i was cutting school one day and they had a little rowboat and supposedly there was an alligator in the canal somewhere and so i took the rowboat and was kind of rowing up and down the canal trying to find the alligator just you know having some fun and uh, yeah 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 real i fun. mean i didn't find an alligator Sounds yeah. like lots of fun. Well, I don't think it was supposed to be a very big alligator. I mean, <laughs> and I was in a boat. I mean, we used to walk and swim in that canal. We had rock fights across that canal with the other kids. Yeah. And uh, so the neighbors down the street had told my parents that I cut school and took the boat. <clears throat> and so, I don't know. We were, Timmy and I were laying outside. There's, there's drainage ditches that run in front of the houses. And we were laying in the ditch with white plastic spoons scooping up mud and flipping it at the front door of the house oh, geez. and uh they could see us through the yeah. window like we weren't hiding yeah. we thought we were hiding but and then all of a sudden the police car rolls up and uh we're just laying there flipping mud at a house and so he wanted to scare us me and uh so he put me in handcuffs but i was skinny man i mean i was i mean i was yeah. always skinny tinny and uh so i had to hold my hands up like this so that he could put the handcuffs on so they wouldn't fall off because if i put my hands down they'd just fall off and uh walks me down the street to my house and knocks on the door and my dad opens the door my mom or whoever it was and there i'm standing in handcuffs and uh apparently that was supposed to bother me or scare me but it really didn't like nothing happened yeah. so what i learned at a real young age was you can end up in handcuffs and nothing bad is going to happen <laughs> so i did <laughs> that's oh, what you got out of it that's what i got out of it most uh, kids would be frightened crying <laughs> Yeah, I don't frighten like that. Um, like, I always measure consequences. I always measure outcomes. I've always been super calculated and super calculating. And um, that's what, you know, originally started them thinking we might, have, we, might, we might have a sociopath on our hands or a psychopath or whatever, whatever level of that scale I fell on. Yeah. Um, because I, I never had remorse for anything I did. Um, ever. 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 Wow. Yeah, most kids would be frightened with the handcuffs. You were like, whatever. Nothing's going to happen to me. <clears throat> right. There's no consequences. And, you know, when you take somebody who's incredibly bold, doesn't process fear properly, and then there's no consequences, it's like, well, what do you think's going to happen? Yeah. Um, What'd your dad do? Was he pissed? I, I don't remember. You know, like... He wasn't around, so how uh, long was he going to be mad? A weekend, and then he had to right. leave he was, town. He was doing special ops for the yeah, CIA. So yeah, he, right. he had enough stuff to worry about, <laughs> right? So like, but it, you know, even if he got mad, he was leaving in a few days. Yeah. So, and my mom was incapable of disciplining me. Like, what's she going to do? Yeah. Um, she tried to spank us, and it was a joke, right? Like, you can't hit hard enough to yeah. to do anything. And uh, I think my dad probably—I don't know if he ever spanked us yeah because he got physically abused so that wasn't something that he uh, went, that he went to right which is which is frankly usually that continues right you like he I mean? went the other way yeah which is good for him it's great yeah, yeah great yeah. for you too yeah 
Well, well, maybe maybe it would have done. Maybe it would have done. Yeah, maybe it would have prevented where you went. I don't know. You can imagine with my mouth and my boldness, I ended up in a fight or two. So yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. All right, keep going here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, did you ever find the alligator? By the way, no, no. I mean, we had. It's funny because like, I don't. I don't even know why, but there were. We had rock fights across that canal, and uh, I didn't even know who those kids were. Right, like it was just us kids on our side of the canal, those kids on that side of the canal, and we just pick up rocks and start throwing them at each other, and trash can lids for shields, you know, yeah. metal trash oh, cans, yeah. you know, before they had plastic ones, and you're That's out there right. like you're out there like a warrior with your shield, and and uh, but I I would always drop the shield and grab a handful of rocks, and I got my head split open, I mean, five or six times. Wow. Yeah, I mean it was just stitches. Yeah. But you end up in the emergency room and bleeding, and mom's crying, and. Yeah, I was the stitch master. I yeah. Had, I had like hundreds of stitches as a kid. Yeah. Like I was, everything I did called, uh, required stitches. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I figured out super glue. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Super glue is amazing. You don't need stitches anymore. Oh, jeez. Like I've glued myself. My <laughs> freaked the crap out of my wife, too. Like you just you just glue it, uh, you know. Because that's what they actually glue it now. Not, yeah. Not, they don't use super glue. I was in they... Mexico two months ago. We were building houses for some... Uh, kids down there with a, a program that goes down and builds houses for people and um, as a charity. And I sliced my hand open here with a box cutter. And we're in Mexico. We're down south of Ensenada. And there happened to be a market nearby. And they had crazy glue or something loco. Yeah, and, something uh, loco. Right. And I just, I mean, I had three inch, like laid oh. it open deep and was able to glue it shut and keep working. Freak people out. Oh my God! But they learned, like you know, what do you do when you're in Mexico and you cut your hand open? Yeah, you super glue it. I you mean, super it's glue it. You, you loco glue it. You loco glue it. Yeah, I mean, it's of course. <laughs> All right. Why not? Why not? Um, yeah. So I, you know, um, Florida was was a lot of fun. That was my carefree days. Um, what age did you get out? Of, what did you have to get out of there? So we moved out of Fort Lauderdale. We moved to Hollywood when I was seven, and we stayed there till I was nine, and then we moved to Missouri. Okay. Um, and anything at like seven, eight, nine? Like, did you terrorize any? Any? Yeah, like I was, uh, <clears throat> I was always stealing. Always stealing. Yeah, like I, I mean, not always, but I was always, I was always on the hunt yeah. for whatever I needed to get into. To get into, but also like we didn't have a lot. We grew up poor. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a lot of food in the house. Um, you know, I remember when food stamps were actually food stamps that you had to tear out of a book and right. pay for stuff at the store. And, you know, so I saw other people, other families that had plenty of food in the house. And um, uh, I thought, well, I can get that. Yeah. So, right. So either establishing friendships with people that, that had those things and then being able to access those things through those people. Uh, but those relationships were always, there was always a purpose for forming yeah. a friendship and a relationship. It was never just for the sake of friendship or An relationship. actual friendship. Yeah. yeah, no, because I didn't, I didn't figure there was much, much need for people, yeah. right? Much need for actual, well, and also I didn't trust, didn't trust people. So yeah. uh, I knew how untrustworthy I was and I couldn't imagine <laughs> that other people were more no trustworthy. No kidding. So and, uh, and so uh, and so you were basically exploiting relationships to just get something. Yeah, well, more or less. Yeah, and I might not need it now, but I was pretty sure I was going to need it in the future. And so everybody that I had relationship with was just um, 
they were cataloged and they were inventoried and they were there on the shelf in case I needed something or, um, yeah. 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 No, I get it. Totally. Yeah. Wow. All right, so you get to, um, what, what, what did you go to, was it Wyoming? Where is it? No, Branson, Missouri. Missouri. So we went from like Miami, Florida to yeah. Branson, Missouri. Oh, jeez. That was a big change. Big. It was it was a really culture shock. You know, in Florida, um, I mean, the people that I went to school with were like every race, every, every ethnicity, uh, every culture, um, Cubans and Haitians and, and just everybody in South, in South Florida. And then I moved to Branson and it was, you know, the population was 1,030 and they were all white and, uh, there was, there were no, no black people, no Mexicans, no, nothing, no, nothing. And Hicks and, um, cowboys and cowgirls and, you know, my mom's family was from Missouri. So oh, they we, were, that's yeah, how you got there. That's how we got there. And, uh. You know, when I lived there in, gosh, I want to say in the early 80s, a black family moved into town and somebody burned a cross on their lawn. Like oh, that was, that, that stuff was still happening. And wow. The Klan was still active and, you know, it was, it was a- Crazy. Yeah. It's like, it was, it was nuts. It was nuts, right? And so how did you do it? Did you go to school? Did you, did you yeah, skip so, school there? Yeah. I, uh. I mostly stayed in school in fourth grade. Um, fifth and sixth grade was this little town across the river called Hollister. And I was in school there. And I just left uh, class almost every day. Uh, I'd just get up and go into the bathroom or go into the office or whatever. And I would just leave and go hang out, go walk around the school or whatever. Just, and how did you do in school? Cause school at this point, yeah, seemed like when, just, when, when I was in Florida, they put me in, um, I was being very disruptive in school. So they put me in the gifted classes with the smarter kids and I was finishing my work and disrupting the gifted class. I was a class clown and would cut up. And so they took me out of that because while I was smart enough to do the work, I was being too disruptive to other people. And so it came easy for you. Yeah. Super easy. Um, School was never a challenge. Um, I could always do uh, pretty advanced mathematics and science and things like that. And I never, I just thought, uh, you know, my dad was pretty good at that sort of thing. And yeah. I thought genetically I was, but it's, it's probably something else, right? I just kind of always knew how to do stuff. Yeah. Um, and it, not just school, but like same with computers and IT or whatever. I've always kind of been able to just sit down and do things, um, without having to learn it first. Yeah. Um, which was good and bad. Uh, it yeah. really served me well when I was doing, you know, crime and, uh, I've always been very, um, analytical and strategic in my thinking. And so, um, the thing that I really enjoyed about, about being a criminal was that there was just always risk, right? You were yeah. always on the edge of something, right? Like there was always an edge. There was always excitement. Um, and if you're not smart enough, you're going to jail. Yeah. And so it was always, you know, guys think they're smart, but they're not risking anything. And if you think you're smart and then you're risking jail, well, now something's on the line. And so it added that extra kick, I guess to uh to everything wow. you know i grew up i wanted to be i wanted to be a, a 
a criminal mastermind kind of that was where like, did that come from like at what time in childhood did you say "Ooh, did you watch a movie did something inspire you it was fun it was fun okay, so, and it was risky and oh, uh so then when did stuff start like when you started doing other than stealing stuff here and there like in school because now you you got me to grade four and five yeah where you're disrupting classes yeah um give me give me to you know where are we after middle school high school when did things really heat up so I got my first felony conviction when I was 12. 12? Yeah, for grand theft. Um, and Because I stole a few thousand dollars. Um, From where? A restaurant I was working at. Um, I, was, I started working when I was 12 uh, as a busboy at a, at a five-star Greek restaurant down on the lake in Branson. And Because um, you could work summer jobs there because yeah. it was a tourist town. And, you know, the population in the town was 1,000 people, but during the summer there would be... A half a million quarter million people in town wow and everybody worked um so i got a work permit which was awesome because i could go to school during the day and then go down to the lake and work at night and i could work till 10 or 11 o'clock and then my folks would pick me up and i learned a lot working at that restaurant so you know white shirt black tie and it was all about service and not being seen so you you had to be sneaky and good and so, you know, somebody takes a sip of their water, you slip in and pour a little bit. Someone um, opens a cracker, you slide in and take the wrapper off the table. Somebody pulls out a cigarette, you bring your hand in from behind them, you light their cigarette. You could smoke in restaurants then. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and so I learned, I learned how to be, um, how to anticipate people's needs and fill that need. And then what happened was the, the, the customers started tipping me directly. Mm and not the waiters, or tipping me um, more than the waiters or whatever, they were tipping the waiters, but they always handed me something extra. Um, and so I found out, you know, really quick that um, providing, anticipating and providing that level of people's needs was profitable. And it's the same in manipulation. It's the same kind of thing. If you identify mm. where somebody wants to go and you can take them there, then you can you can get a lot from them, even yeah. if they don't want to give it. Um, so, but I also got to stand around and listen to grownups talk yeah. about all kinds of stuff. And so I was just, you know, I'm like a sponge. And so I just absorb, I love learning. And I took in all that knowledge for every night. Yeah. I just got new conversations. You hear people talking about business and relationships and kids and strategies and and all kinds of stuff and my mind would just take those ideas and and run with them right and that was that was the thing like you know you want to be a super villain well there's a lot to think about there and my mind was always a very active place um still is and have a hard time calming it down so there's not a lot that you can think about that's going to challenge a, a very active mind constantly yeah um so crime was one of those things that there was just never an end to it. You could just think and think and think and strategize and refine and strategize and refine and strategize and refine and then test it. Um, and I was a kid, so there wasn't a lot of other things that I could do. Right. Um, what about sports? No sports? I, when I was uh, 13, I started boxing. Mm. Um, but which, nothing earlier than that? No baseball, no football, no soccer? No, like I... I, I, I have a hard time with um baseball like i can't throw a baseball very good yeah um 
I can hit pretty good because I'm, I'm really flexible and I could wind up and generate a lot of power. Um, but volleyball, as I got older, uh, played a lot of beach volleyball, but I somehow lose track of the ball. Like I just, I don't know. I lose track of the ball yeah. when, it, when I'm, when I'm supposed to be doing something, even my buddy would set me for a spike and I would jump up and it's beautiful. And if it's up there too long, I just, I don't know, start looking around and <laughs> miss the ball or something. Right. <laughs> just too easily distracted. Uh, but I liked, you know, I, I, as I, as I look back on this, you know, um, I joined the boxing squad and I, I loved working because you belonged to something, right? You had a different, yeah. you had people around you with a common goal and you're all in that fight together and the restaurant gets busy and you're just slammed and you're working your ass off. And at the end of the night, you're celebrating in a way with the guys that you just crushed it with, right? Yep. And so that became my sport. Um, mm. And so I started working in the restaurants. I started as, like I said, as a busboy, but pretty quick I, I worked my way back into the kitchen as a dishwasher and then as a cook. And at 14, I was cooking. Wow. Um, yeah. And I loved dishwashing, you know, just leave me alone and let me do my thing. And they could pile the work on and I would grind through it. And um, so you liked that better than actually out in the front yeah, serving the customers? Yeah, I did. But didn't you make more money getting the tips? I did. I did. But I liked it in the back. Um, for a couple reasons. Um, one, dishwashing, I could do it without thinking about it. So my mind could always just be free on whatever I wanted to think about at the time. So it was, um, I still enjoy washing dishes actually as wow. a way to just let my mind process stuff. So it's, it's interesting how that happened. Plus the camaraderie in the kitchen was really different. Um, and at the end of the night, they'd set up shots and you could drink and you could do Coke and you could do all these things. And wow. it meant something to the front, the the kitchen staff, the the dining room staff, they didn't do all that stuff. Like they just cleaned up the dining room and went home. Yeah, the kitchen staff partied afterwards. Um, and w were you doing blow at that age? Uh, fourteen, fifteen, I think I did with the kitchen guys. Yeah, that's where it started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was drinking long before that, but yeah, yeah. you're drinking like what twelve and thirteen? At twelve, at uh, the the Greek restaurant was different. Uh, that was great because at the end of the night, we could go into the bar and we could make ourselves a cherry Coke, right? We yeah. couldn't have alcohol, but it was like you worked hard and you could go into the bar and sit and have a, have a drink, a kid's drink. Yeah. Uh, and that was great. But uh, at 13 and 14, um, it, was, it was drinking alcohol. It was have a beer. It was do a shot. It was, um, you know, started playing poker at that time. Uh, you know, with the kitchen staff and yeah. still love poker. It's, it's, That's only, right. it's the only place left. I'm allowed to still be deceptive. <laughs> <laughs> Legally. Legally. God's not going to come down on me for bluffing, but I, you know, my game is all bluff. It's like, all bluff. Yeah, it is. Like I never have a hand. So if you want to, I never, have. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to make a hand in poker. If so, I ever, if I ever played, I'd be like you yeah. because there's not enough money that can get me upset. Right. Like, so I don't care. Well, like I don't I know. Lose it, I, I still don't get upset. Oh, do you really? I was playing last night. I was playing online last night. I lost like $400. I was so pissed. Are you, <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? Isn't anybody on to you by now? Like, they know you're always bluffing. Yeah, well, I actually wasn't bluffing last night. That's what made it tough. It's like when I lose with a good, like, I don't mind losing yeah. my bluffs. But when I lose with a good hand, somehow I feel like I'm somehow entitled to win. <laughs> oh my it's an God. absolute joke. Hopefully your poker players won't watch this. 
Well, we're gonna we're gonna sell you out. Yeah, it's fine. All right, so go back yeah. here. Don't go yeah. back now. Give me the thing where in the kitchen it, you said fourteen. Did yeah. They say do. Were they trying to get you to do lines before that? No. no. And they never no. tried no. to no. get me to do anything. It was just there if I wanted it. Um, and probably I was smoking pot by then at thirteen. Yeah. Um, and it was funny because up until the time when someone offered me pot, I said I wouldn't smoke pot. Like my sister, I'd known that she had done it and had been for a couple of years, and it wasn't really anything that I was interested she, she in. She was older than you? Yeah. Four years, five years older than me. And um, she had a boyfriend who brought some weed over to the house, and I was, I was nine or ten at that point. And didn't know too much about it, but saw it, smelled it, knew what it was, and... Um, didn't have much interest in it. And then when I was 13, um, I was working at a restaurant and um, working in the kitchen, making biscuits and gravy and finished up. And the guy asked me, pulled out a little pipe he had made from a rib bone, asked me if I wanted to smoke pot. And I was like, sure. A chance to be included, a chance yeah. to write, uh, you know, be a part of something. And um, as much as I... <clears throat> As much as I was a loner or felt like I didn't need to be a part of something, I find that um, looking back that I took a lot of opportunities to try to feel like I was a part of something. Yeah. Um, And, you know, reestablish that family that that I didn't have at home. So that was kind of what it was with smoking pot. And then, um, well, I really liked smoking pot. Yeah. And And that was about 13. Yeah. And so I did that a lot. and then so once you liked that did you start smoking it daily i don't know about daily but pretty often um before school as much as i could yeah i mean by the time i was in like in ninth grade i was voted student most seen in the principal's office when i was in 10th grade i was only in school something like 40 days out of the year uh i was just cutting the rest um and so did you just fail did you fail everything because of this I'm not calculus, not calculus. Uh, my calculus class was first thing in the morning. And so I would show up, do that class and I would be stoned. Like I'd be smoked out of my head and I would sleep through the class and, and, but I used to make cheat sheets for people and, um, little tiny man, I could make the best little three quarter inch by three quarter inch cheat sheet with all the stuff on it. But like you write a cheat sheet out a dozen times. Well, you know it. So you don't need it for the test. Right. Um, so it was how I studied. I made cheat sheets for people. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Did you get busted doing that? I did. Uh, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, guys did, ratted me out. They ratted you out? Yeah, the little punks. It's like, so then... Uh, I didn't write it. I just picked it up. It was just there. Brian. I got I got ratted out for cheating in Spanish. Some little goody two-shoes girl in, in my freshman year. Like Spanish in Branson, Missouri. You didn't have any Mexican people no. here. Like, what are we doing here? Right. What are you doing? I mean, my dad spoke Spanish in Florida, but I'm I'm in Branson, Missouri with no way out. There's nobody, nobody. I don't yeah. need to speak Spanish to anybody. And then I joined the Navy and come out here and everybody speaks Spanish. Yeah, of course. Like, but I can't roll my R's, so it's not it's not <laughs> even gonna happen. And it sounds you sound listen, if you can't roll your R's and you're trying to do bother. the fake roll R thing when you're speaking, you just sound way whiter than you should. So yeah. just Marry somebody who speaks total Spanish. Gring, total gringo. Yeah, total gringo. Um, so yeah, so I ended up spending Spanish class in the principal's office. Every day I'd have to spend third period in the principal's office. Well, I mean, why just, why bother? So I just would leave and go to the lake. Uh, 
I found out like Walmart, man, what a, Walmart was my ATM when I was 13 and 14 years old. Cause I went into Walmart one time with my mom and she wanted to return something. And there's a woman by the door with a, a, a sheet of those, um, stick on dots, right? Post yeah. little, little dots. And she, my mom had something to return. And this woman took one of those dots and she wrote the date on it. And she stuck it on the box that my mom was returning. And my mom walked over to the service desk and she returned it and they gave her cash. I mean, so I, every time I went to Walmart, I went to the office section, the office supply section. I grabbed a pack of those green dots or whatever color they were using for the day. I grabbed a pen and I walked over to the electronic section. I grabbed a boom box. I took out a dot. I wrote the date, stuck it on the box. I walked up front and I returned it and they gave me cash. <laughs> like... That happened, and I was 13, right? So nobody's oh going to think, here's this cute, skinny, you know, yeah. dimples. Totally scamming. Totally scamming. And I probably returned stuff there three days a week. Um, didn't, get, they, didn't they after a while go, oh, you're back? Sooner or later, and that's when, that was another felony at some point, right? But it was like not even really a felony because it's like 50 bucks or something, which isn't grand theft and it's petty theft. And like, I'm already on probation. So what are you going to do? When I was 12, they put me on six months probation, right? So I was supposed to be for, off at- Was this for the Walmart? Uh, no, this was before Walmart. This was for the few thousand dollars. Um, oh, we never finished that. How did, yeah. you, how did you steal the- Give me- It was a check. It was a, a check that I found in, a, in the drawer at the restaurant that was made out to uh, an employee that was no longer there. Well, I had a buddy who had the same name. So I took the check, we cashed it. Did you give him a cut? Yeah. I mean, how else are you going to get him to do it? Like, no, I'm just going to use your, your sure name. He went in, he cashed the check. I don't even think he got in trouble. I got in trouble. Um, but I had been like, the cops were onto me before that. But at 12, they're like, we can't keep looking the other way. Um, and so they put me so on. So what was it, like $3,000, this yeah, check? It was like, uh, it was probably like 1800 bucks, 2200 bucks, yeah. something like that, which was a ton of money yeah, in, that's in 82. Yeah, a ton of money. Yeah. So that was always my problem was I never knew what too much was. So when I was, when I was younger, um, you know, my parents would have parties and they'd have people come over and everybody would put their purses and their jackets on the, one of the bedrooms on the bed. And while the party's going on, I would sneak in the bedroom and pilfer the purses and the, like take a little bit of cash. Well, I took a 20, which in late 70s early 80s 20 was like 100 yeah, yeah and people noticed the 20 totally true they noticed the 20 and my mom straight to me you she know. knew well yeah none of my brothers or sisters were gonna they didn't have the balls to go in and take money out of people's wallets so did, so with them in the, the next guests, room one of the guests was like hey i'm missing a 20 yeah yeah you got anybody in your house that might want to take it she said yeah well brian so <laughs> yeah so i had to give the money back because i hadn't spent it yet uh but they noticed properly like how long that was night. that operation going for a while before you got caught a while like but i so you're doing fives and tens ones and fives ones and keeping fives. it small so they don't but yeah know. but i didn't know i didn't know how much a 20 was i just like it was all they had so that was the only thing in their wallet <laughs> was the only thing in their wallet <laughs> of course they noticed what? It was... <laughs> hey they could have misplaced it at home <laughs> <laughs> so you loved the parties you loved yeah. the parties oh yeah it was great it was great. Uh, it, it was, just, was uh, great. I was an opportunist, and I saw opportunity everywhere, right? And I, I, again, I had no limiting principle. I had no governor, no, no sense of proportion, right? Everything I did was 
tended to get out of hand. Okay, so give me the check thing. So the check thing, you yeah. cash it. How did that? How did you guys get busted on that? Well, the the uh, the restaurant that person showed up to pick up their check, and the check wasn't in the drawer. Is this person that's getting paid? Like, yeah, they'd gotten wages? fired. They'd gotten fired or they'd quit. Oh, and it was, was it their last check, check okay. that was sitting there. And uh, I mean, it sat in the drawer for a couple weeks before I took it. So, so you gave him an opportunity. I did. I gave I him did. I'm like, it was, what was sad was my mom worked. So <laughs> She worked there? I got her a job there. Oh, Lord. So I, got, I started working there. I got my mom a job there. I got my brother a job there. And because uh, I was crushing it. Like, I, you know, I did work hard and I, I did perform. Uh, and she was a hostess. And uh, she charged us for gas money. Like, that was my mom. What? Yeah. She, I got her the job there. Then she charged us for gas money when she had to drive there anyway. Yeah, what? she was my mom and money. What do you mean woman. to drive you there? Yeah. Like we were sharing the gas money for her to drive to the job that I got her. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make any logical sense. She was she was my mom also looked out for herself. Let's just say that. Let's just say that. Yeah. Okay. So I, it didn't come from nowhere. <laughs> oh my Yeah, she God. charged me and my brother. Yeah. Yeah. And so. were you guys like, Mom, wait a minute. This isn't making I got you the job here. Well, you should be paying me. She's like, we're all going to work, so we should all pay. I mean. All right. So then how yeah. they, they go, the person comes so the, in, the check isn't there. Yeah. So they go to the bank. They find out, you know, who cashed it. I guess his ID or I don't know. It was a small town. Like there weren't that many people right. with that name in that town. Right. It's like, hey, there was a, it was some 15-year-old kid came in here and cashed an $1,800 check and that was his name. Well, there's only one other 15-year-old kid with that name in town. So. You know, they called him up and then he just pointed right. He ratted you. Straight rat. Yeah. Straight. Which I would expect. I yeah, mean, of course. It's not going to take the rat for you. No, he's not going to take it by himself. No. Because he didn't work at the restaurant. How did he get his hands on it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what do you do? Break into the restaurant? They're going to charge him with breaking and entering. It's like, no, no. All I did was, all I did was cash the so, check. So they came to you and said, yo. Yeah. Would you try to deny it at first? Yeah, they arrested me outside the movie theater. Like, well, I was. Um, and you what 12 13 12 yeah 12 almost 13 so they were outside the movie theater yeah i so i would go and you know watch a movie and either sneak in or pay for one and then watch a bunch love movies always have yeah, yeah me too and um yeah so they my mom told them where Did i they was handcuff you again yeah handcuff me again Took me to the little police station. uh, Here we go with these cute little handcuffs again. Yeah, I mean, I'm 12. I know what happens when you're 12. Nothing. (laughs) Right? There was no juvenile hall in Branson, Missouri. They didn't have. They didn't have schools. Like they. I mean, they just took me in. They took me to a judge in a nearby town. They put me on six months probation, and that probation lasted six years. Like I was on it until I turned 18 because I would reoffend. And they're like, "Well, this time we're gonna. You're gonna what? You (laughs) go." (laughs) <laughs> what are you gonna do to me? I'm a minor. <laughs> so you were a nightmare. I was so much so that my folks disowned me and shipped me off to a like you know when your dog bites someone yeah. and they they say oh we took him out to a farm to go run wild and be free yeah that's what they did to me like go we took Brian out to a farm it literally dropped me off at a farm in Rolla Missouri. What age was this? 15 15 16 no 16 because i had my driver's license man when i got i got my car at 15 and a half got my license at 16 and it was on like now i had absolute freedom at 16 and uh how many other times had you gotten busted between 13 and 15 like why did you keep going on probation why did it keep extending because i kept 
getting caught with weed or uh, stealing or. Did you ever get caught at the, 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 the Walmart thing? The Walmart operation? I don't think so. No, that was clean. Well, okay. Clean. I never got I never got arrested for it, but I think after a while they're like, you're not allowed to return anything else here. Like I think that they were this was before cameras even, right? Yeah. There weren't cameras at Walmart. But again, small town, same people working, same kid coming in, returning the same boom box, you know, six times or oh, whatever man. it was. Whatever I could find. It's like what's small and worth fifty bucks? Because, you know, for fifteen bucks you could rent a boat out at the lake and there was a liquor store out there that would sell you beer or you could just steal it or you uh, could just steal it yeah like we used to go into the liquor store and it was a, people were so it was so easy right so there were a few liquor stores and they would stack up their empty boxes by their full cases of beer and so you'd just walk in and say, hey, I'm moving. Can I grab some boxes? And they'd say, yeah, they're in the back. And you'd walk back. You'd grab a case of beer, stack three or four empty boxes on top of it, and walk out. So we had a case of beer. Brilliant. Yeah. Like, I thought really smart, like really high-end stuff. And so, you know, yeah. I was really case proud of that. Of beer. I was proud of the beer. High I end. was proud of Walmart. I was really proud of the, the griff that I came up with. Uh, <laughs> did you, so did you have a, a group of friends or that you would fill in on this that tell about your operations? No, because people couldn't be trusted, but right. I would share with them. So my little brother, actually, Kevin, uh, he would, we used to run together. And so I would drag him along with me and then I could be the distraction and he'd stick a bottle of whiskey in his jacket or whatever. And, and we'd get out of there. Um, I'll see who was your partner in crime a little bit. Yeah, he was the main reason. Kevin was a good kid, and he's the main reason that my folks said, like, you're out. Like, you're taking Kevin with you now. I moved out um, when I was almost 15, kind of moved out and was living with some guys that I was working with. and At the restaurant. Yeah, and uh, we're living in this mobile home. Now, when you got caught stealing at the restaurant, did you immediately get fired? Yeah, yeah. My mom didn't, though. She was had to go to work pretty embarrassed oh wow yeah like that's brian like what are you gonna do protect yourself at all times because that kid is something wow yeah all right so keep going here yeah now yeah keep going so now 15 you basically left the house did they did they drop you in the middle of nowhere what's the yeah so um i was running pretty amok uh at when i got my car um all bets were off because there were just no restrictions anymore. Um, I bought a car when I was 15 and a half um, in anticipation of getting my license. I bought a 1971 Chevy Impala. It was a big oh, yeah. green tank, man. Oh, and you could God. slide that car around the turns and slam it into a tree and it didn't care. And, you know, we just had a blast. And I thought I was way cooler than I was. But still, I was a 15-year-old with a, with a car yeah. and money. Um, and that, that can make you popular. Oh yeah. Um, and it did like there were, um, it made it easier to take advantage of people. It made it easier to, um, manipulate, you know, um, we, we threw parties. I could drive to go pick up weed and alcohol. Um, you know, uh, and if I didn't have money, I would steal the weed or steal the money and then get it. And, you know, but having a party was 
made me feel like I belonged or people wanted to be there. And they probably, some did. Like yeah. I had a couple of friends. I usually had one friend at a time that I could trust or that I thought, uh, that I trusted at least some some extent. Right. But only one at a time. Uh, and a couple of times, um, you know, things would get so out of hand. Uh, we had a, uh, there was a guy next door, um, Mike was a good friend. He was a couple years older. Uh, they moved in from Oklahoma. They were there for a couple years, and then they moved back to Oklahoma. Uh, and their mom, his mom, told my mom it was because of me. They're like, Brian is corrupting Mike. He's getting him in trouble. You guys have a party at the house. We're out of town. Somebody went through this sliding glass door. The cops are always there. Like we, we were getting in some trouble. And so they moved out of town. They moved back. Like I had two two families that moved away because of my behavior. <laughs> I was a bit of I was a bit of a disruptive force to their families and they did not appreciate it. Oh my gosh. They thought their kids were good kids. It's like no they're not. No. They just never been tried. Yeah. Like they just haven't been correctly corrupted. Well, if they were good kids you couldn't corrupt them. Right, that's true. Right? So like you just you don't know who they are because they've never had an opportunity to really show who they are. Right. But I gave them an opportunity to show who they were. <laughs> Look, kids want to do wild stuff, and it was, you know. And it's cool. It was cool. Yeah. Like, people going through a sliding glass door at a party, drunk, was cool. Yeah, really The cool. cops showing up and breaking up the party was cool. Like, right. everybody knew that the cops showed up and broke up the party. So, and it was my party. So that was. Yeah, you're a legend. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, most likely to end up dead. And yeah. the, all right, so then, so when did they say, that's it, you're out of here? So I was, uh, I was 16. I'd had my car and, and was, uh, wasn't really living at home, um, but I was dragging my little brother around, and he was 14. And, and what uh, is your, now what's your dad saying about all this? So when we moved to Missouri, my dad's schedule, like he started an insurance company, right? And he was selling insurance. Here we so that's go. what he said. Right. So he would, but he was on the road selling insurance Monday through Friday. He would leave, he would leave Sunday night, set up appointments for all week. He would leave Sunday night and he would come back Friday night or Saturday. And so he was gone all week. Like he was only home on the weekend. So again, what are you going to do? Yeah. Are you going to discipline me? Are you going to, you're going to try to correct me? You're never here. Like you're not a dad. You're not, we don't have a relationship. Yeah. So you don't really have any authority over me like you can i've been working since i was 12 years old right and he don't he we didn't have any money so anytime i talked about wanting something he said you want something get a job and earn it well i did and once i started doing that it's like well i'm a man now screw you so yeah, what's he gonna do what's he gonna do he was gone right and then when he came home like he didn't want to be around like he had a week of quiet like by himself and he comes home to three boys and a girl and I'm one of the boys, right? Like riddled with ADD, can't sit still, loud, uh, you know, like there was yeah. not a, it was not a peaceful, serene. It was mayhem. It was mayhem. And I was always, there was always something going on with, with me, right? <laughs> there was just always a poor guy. Poor guy. He did not deserve. That's why he was leaving every week. Yeah. He wasn't I, insurance. Who could blame him? We used to have two different dinners. My mom would make dinner for us kids, and we would eat together, and then dinner for them, because he couldn't sit at the table with us. 
Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Because she's just crazy. It was nuts. Well, and like when I was younger in Florida, like I said, we were poor, right? So like we had bad food. Like dinner would be like lima beans and a slice of ham or some nonsense, like or tuna fish. Yeah. Like I don't eat tuna fish. Yeah. I don't. It's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd stuff it in a green bell pepper. Like, what is that? You take a bitter, nasty pepper, you stuff fish in it, and then you serve it with lima beans. Or, like, I'd walk in the door and smell pinto beans in a crock pot and be like, man, I'm out of here. There's a reason I chose restaurants to work in. Yeah. Because right? you could eat whatever. But, yeah, I, but we were forced to eat it, right? We had to, we had to consume it. Um, <laughs> had to consume it. We did. So, like, I could swallow a whole serving of peas in one bite without chewing it like just put it oh. all in my mouth swallow it whole like good enough good enough and i'm out like screw you oh my gosh so all right so <laughs> all right so you got to 15 or 16 you've been on probation for like years yeah yeah so i i came home from <clears throat> i came home from partying uh and my dad now at this point you had done coke yeah. No, we're doing it regularly. No, no. no. Coke was tough to get. Um, yeah. Weed was easy. Um, it was like 20 bucks for a quarter ounce or yeah. something like that. Pretty inexpensive. And you could always rob the pot dealers too if you're out of money. So, you know, I did that. <laughs> Robbed my dealer, poor guy. Went to his freezer when he wasn't home, walked in, took out all his stuff, went home, had a party. Like not smart because like when you steal weed and then have a party in a small yeah, town, everybody yeah. knows that you, you know. So did, did he know it was you? Yeah, but what could he do? Like, he, you know, you he don't prove it. Even if he could, like, if you want to fight, like, we all have guns. Yeah. And he wasn't like he was just a pot dealer. He wasn't he wasn't a hard guy. Yeah. Like he wasn't a badass. So he just had to kind of take it. You know. <laughs> We all had guns. Right. I mean, it was Missouri, right? Everybody. And I'd been in fights, right? And I didn't, I don't get hurt in fights. Yeah. I don't, I could just fight. You know, everything slows down for me in a fight. It's yeah. nice. Yeah. It's um, nice. It's yeah. nice. It's nice. You don't panic, you know, yeah. fights on the street, fights in prison, fights in the Navy. Like you just, just end it as quick as you can. Yeah. And I was pretty, I was pretty mean. Like I don't. Other people would use an appropriate amount of violence. Yeah, you'd go overboard. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, there's not, what do you mean an appropriate, the appropriate amount of violence is all of the violence. Yeah. Until so the, that so that not, not only do I end this fight, but you don't ever think about fighting me again. And neither does anybody who hears about this fight. Um, wow. Yeah. And, th and those happened in, in, when you were teenagers as well. Yeah. Yeah, but I, so my dad always told me, like, if somebody tries to ha have a fight with you, walk away, and if you can't walk away, end it as quick as you can. Like, that was good advice. Yes. And so I only had a couple of fights in, in high school, in school, um, and one of them was, kid was giving me a hard time, Donnie something, little, little punk. <laughs> little punk. He was, but my, I was in art class or something, and man, my teachers loved me. Like, even though I was disruptive and, like, not showing up, for some reason, man, I was, you know, cute and clever and witty and charming, and my teachers just loved me. And they just thought, you know, 
Brian's got a bad break or he's not really as bad as he seems. And I was as bad as I seemed, but they didn't. And Donnie like grabs me in the hallway and spins me around and reaches back to hit me. And before he hit me, I probably hit him three or four times and hit him in the throat and, you know, like yeah. just ended it. And uh, of course went to the office and <clears throat> his parents came in. I don't even know if anybody showed up for me, but my art teacher did. My art teacher came down and said, no, Brian, you know, didn't, didn't instigate it, didn't fight it. Donnie grabbed him. Brian just defended himself, right? I loved her. She was great. Wow. Yeah. So that was my last fight in, in school. Yeah. Right. Some fights outside of school. Um, prison, obviously, there's going to be some fights. Um, yeah. So I'll get, uh, so yeah, so I'm 16. <clears throat> I've been running amok. I'd, you know, almost hurt some people and uh i come home from a thing and uh my friend uh, jimmy was there and he was my one friend at the time we used to we used to go out every night and smoke pot and and you know take his grandmother's car out of the driveway once she'd go to sleep he lived with his grandma we'd roll the car out of the driveway and bump start it down the road and just go and have fun and uh, so he's there, and my folks said, hey, we're going to visit <clears throat> Uncle Somebody, right? So Kevin's there, Timmy's there, or Jimmy's there, my mom and dad, not my other brother and sister. I don't know where they were. So we drive off. We drive, I don't know, three hours into the middle of the sticks, and we pull up to this farm. And uh, I'm like, well, what the hell is this? And they said, well, this is your new home. <laughs> We made you a ward of the court and you're here for like, lose my number. So I got, this was your mom and dad, my mom and dad. Yeah. At 16. Yeah. I mean, I had it coming. Like I said, I was, I was certainly, um, like the liability was starting to come down. They were worried about them getting in trouble for stuff that I was doing. And they were trying to protect Kevin. Kevin was 14 at the time. Kevin, by the way, hasn't had a drink since. My little brother. Like, my mom started taking me to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings when I was 14 years old. 14? Yeah. Yeah, sitting in AA meetings with all these old, drunk hicks that literally there were guys there that, like, got, somebody would say something offensive, and this one guy would take out his pistol, take out a bullet, write his name on it, and say, I'm going to kill you after the meeting. Like, he did that a half a dozen times. Never actually shot the people, but oh my, he God. was offendable. But, wow. you know, but man, did I meet... Like, that's not the environment you want to put me in. I heard all the drunk stories. I heard all the the party stories, the thieving stories, the how not to get caught. Like, people are talking about what they did and how they blew it. And I just, I learned a lot. And you were taking I, notes. And I refined my game, right? <clears throat> I learned how to do better. Do, <laughs> do better at being bad, you know? And... uh yeah, so I... 14. Yeah, 14, sitting in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, listening to these guys tell their drunkologues and, you know, recite their slogans. And you Did know. you have to say, did you have to admit that you were an alcoholic? Like, hey, I'm, I'm yeah. Brian, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, I mean, whatever, that's what you did, right? Yeah. And I could always play the game, right? I mean, I could cry if I needed to. I could fake emotion if I needed to. I never felt a thing. Um there's no remorse at all for what was happening. No. Zero. No. And I never felt like my folks dropped me off at the farm. I grabbed my shit and walked inside. I wasn't sad. So I said, this is your home. Yeah. You're ward of the court. Yeah. You live here now. It's like, okay. Please They'd already lose my number. Yeah. 
They'd already tried to take me to the, they took me to the prison in Jefferson City, Missouri to do a scared straight thing, right? So tour the prison. What age was that? 15, 14. Okay. Yeah. And so like I toured the prison and I talked to guys that were in there for serving life. And I thought, well, you must have screwed up, man, because <laughs> be smarter and you won't be caught facing life, right? Funny thing was, is, you know, a few years later, I was facing life in prison twice, actually. So... But that it, was your thought process. Like, yeah, it like, didn't you know, work. Like looking at them, like you're just you're just dumb. You didn't. You just, yeah. You just didn't do this the right way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to end up here. And if I and do, were they trying to yell at you and like the guards? Nah, were, nah. Some of that, but like I understood a show when I saw it. Right. Like I, I've always been really good at reading people and understanding when somebody's playing a part. Right. Yeah. And so. You know, I got really good at manipulating people and understanding who was really who was really a threat and who was just for show. And, and then, okay, so get back to this thing where you're yeah. dropped off. Yeah, like what was this? Who was so? This there? was a halfway house where there were guys coming coming out of prison. There were guys like I was the one of the youngest guys there. There were older guys, right? Not juveniles. This was not a juvenile facility. This was a facility for grownups. And um, there was one other kid there my age. And everybody else was older. They were either last stop before prison or getting out of prison. And it was a, a halfway house where they could, you know, try to get their, their act together and prove that they could do life outside of prison. And, uh, you know, there was a priest that was running it. And uh, it was a farm. So you worked on the farm. Did she say how long you're going to be there? Well, in Missouri at 17, you're an adult. So they told me I had to stay there till I was 18 but I knew better. So at 17, I grabbed my shit and walked out the door. So hitched my way back to Springfield. So you spent about a year there? Yeah, like probably six, eight months. Um, it wasn't very long after my 16th birthday that they sent me there. Like it was maybe six months in. Uh, spent the winter there. So you worked on the farm. There was, uh, they had a little thrift store in town. And who ran? He said a priest? Yeah, some priest. Did you ever go to church as a kid? Yeah, I was an altar boy. Like I grew up, uh, I grew up Catholic, and so uh, an altar boy. Yeah, it's, wow. At twelve, I started being an altar boy at a Catholic church, which meant they had real alcohol because they do real alcohol for communion. Um, you could, they they have at, at the Catholic church they have little stations around the church where they have candles, and you can go and light a candle and pray for somebody. Right, and they have a little donation cup there, and you can put some money in to pay for the candle. Well, that was my like that was my money supply. So I would serve and go do the mass. And it was way better being an altar boy than sitting in the pew, right? Cause sitting yeah. in the pew, it's a hardwood pew. You got nothing to do, nothing to distract you. And it's just this, this ritual, right? Every week, same routine, same pattern, up, down, up, down, kneel, up, kneel, up, yeah, down. Up, I remember right? that. Yeah. So, but like if you're serving, well, there's something to do, right? And so you get there early you could take a drink, you could serve, right? Uh, and when you were an altar boy, you got this unearned honor and morality, right? Like people just assume that, well, you're, you must be a good kid, you're an altar boy. And you could just hide right there and, you know, like I lived my whole life doing that. Um, but afterwards, when you're cleaning up around the church and whatever, I could just walk by, grab five or 10 bucks or whatever's in the thing. 
and my parents had head home and I could, there's a little pathway you could walk down the hill and up the hill and there was a liquor store and an arcade. And so I could serve at church and then get out of church around 11 and walk over to the liquor store and get a drink and play video games. So wow. yeah, I was not serving the church. No. I was, God and I, I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> doing him any favors. <laughs> you know. They were laughing, but this is nuts. Yeah. All right, go back to the halfway house. What did you yeah. do? Like the first, you just settle right in? Yeah. Like I've, you know, did I've you, always. Were you thinking about operations you could do there? Like how you could steal from the guys there? Like what, where did your mind go on that one? Uh, Cause you couldn't leave the property, right? Yeah. I mean, it was a big farm. So like, and, but you're in the middle of the note, like, where are you going to go? Like there were, there were no cell phones at this point, yeah, right? Everything right. was a landline. There was no, there were no Walkmans, right? right? Like right. it was just, you know. So you could walk out on the farm, and so you could find time to yourself. I guess we did have some sort of music, maybe cassette tapes and Walkmans yeah. were then, yeah. because people used to listen to music in their in their rooms. Because we're like mid mid to late eighties. Yeah, this point. we were eighty six. Yeah, um, eighty six, and so there were, um, but it was kind of a big deal to have one. Um, I didn't have one, but people there did. So I made a friend. You know, always try to make one, and um, nice to have somebody that you can at least have somebody watching your back a little bit. Yeah. Um, so choose wisely, you know? So I found somebody that was um, similar to me, a little broken, family had turned him out. And so, you know, find a kindred spirit. And then... Um, give them a sense that you're, you're going to be like this, right? Even yeah. though I, I knew that like, I'm just... You're just here to watch my back. Yeah. I'm not going to watch yours. Well, if it serves me, like I'm not going to let anybody screw you over too bad because you're the guy watching my back. Right. So like I am going to look out for you to some extent, but not because, not for the reasons that you think. Um, and so, yeah, so found somebody to hang with. And, you know, I can, I can survive anything. So. Uh, and then 17. Yeah. So at 17, I just grabbed my stuff and left. Uh, they couldn't do anything about it. No, they could yell at me but i was gone like they can't where'd you go back to springfield uh back to branson my dad was in springfield at the time uh my parents had divorced uh oh they had so they separated when i was a kid um in florida and then they divorced when i was i don't know maybe 14 then they got remarried when i was like 16 and then they divorced again a few years later. Wow. So. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So they, like, I heard someone at a, it may not be appropriate. I heard someone at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. This woman was talking. She's like, she had married the same guy twice. And she said, don't, don't ever do that. It's like taking a bite out of the same turd twice. I was like, yep. <laughs> That's how it was and for my And did you folks. go to AA, like? When I had to. Like, we had to go to meetings at the farm. Uh you know no at the farm are you drinking at all you find alcohol somehow uh from time to time but like if i didn't have it it's no big deal yeah uh it wasn't uh it wasn't like a physical addiction or anything like that didn't smoke weed when i was there because it was you know tough to get we didn't have any money um didn't really have the opportunity to meet people that were doing it or yeah. establish a, a relationship enough to get it so i just didn't do it and then um, when you drove back to missouri or wherever you were. Yeah. Parents had divorced again. Yeah. Where'd you live? Uh, 
people I'd worked with, um, got my place, started working, um, bounced around a little bit. Uh, Did you talk to your mom at all? Were you talking to her at this point? No. No. No, I wasn't really talking to anybody. Um, I mean, they disowned me, so. They literally disowned you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I became a ward of the court. So they were no longer no longer my parents, so screw you. I don't know what we have to talk about. So um, when I was Had seven, they threatened you up to that point saying, hey, we're going to disown you if you No, I didn't know. That came totally out of nowhere. Like, I came, like, seriously, I thought we were driving to go visit my uncle. And we got there, and it's like, this is your new home. You're a ward of the court. I'm like, okay. All right. I mean, we didn't really have relationship anyway. Yeah. And so... I didn't expect them to behave in a way that I had heard parents were supposed to behave. Um, I didn't trust them. They didn't trust me. We didn't have any kind of relationship. So it was, you know, yeah. it wasn't a thing. I wasn't sad. Like I, I had no emotional response to it, but I, I'd never had an emotional response to anything. Like I didn't actually have a feeling until I was almost 40. Like where I, there was a situation where people say, oh, I feel this way or whatever. But I, I actually had a feeling in my body, like a, actually the first time was, I was 35. And I just, it was felt really weird in my chest. Like I had a, like there was a, a weight on my chest. Yeah. And I, I asked my buddy like, what the hell is this? And he it's said, an emotion. yeah, it's what he said. He's like, well, your wife just divorced you. So you're probably feeling sadness. I was like, hmm. Okay, well, that's what that feels like. And then again, at, at like 40, my daughter was, my wife was leaving with my daughters and I felt like butterflies. Like I understood what people had talked about that my whole life. Oh, butterflies, I don't know what you're talking about. Like that's just nonsense. But a physical feeling in my body didn't happen until I was 40, like 35 and 40 years old. So I went through, yeah, so they dropped me off. I grabbed my bag and walked inside and set up for... Uh, did my time at the camp, uh, you know. I knew how to keep my head down and not get in more trouble. Uh, All right, so get, yeah. so you so you left there. You come yep. back to Missouri. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the fast forward to where you just started getting into more deeper criminal activity. Yeah, I mean, I. So when I when I got out of there, uh, I I. I didn't have a lot of prospects, but my whole family had been in the Navy, and I thought, well, hell, I could join the Navy. Mm. So I went to the recruiter's office, took the test. I got my, I didn't finish high school, obviously. I left in 10th grade. Um, and you left in 10th, so you didn't even have a GED. No, well, I got my GED at the farm. They required ah. us to get our GED. So oh, that was cool. one of the things I did there. So they drove us to somewhere. I took the test. I passed it. I was done. Like, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't hard. So same thing for the Navy. They they, they took me somewhere, take the entrance exam. Yeah, the ASVAB. Yeah, so I did really good on the ASVAB, almost aced it. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't do, they said you can do whatever you want except nuclear because you need a high school diploma to enter the nuclear program. That's right. right. I so got off I, of the nuclear as well. Yeah. So I became a, a sonar tech um, operating and fixing sonar systems. And like so, AW? Yeah, a, uh, um, ST. ST, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> did it change to AW? Surface. Uh, no, that's aviation warfare. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so joined the Navy, came out here. They flew me out here. I was 18, like two months after my 18th so birthday. So how the hell did you make it in the Navy? Or didn't you? No, well, 
So, like, how can you possibly go from that life? I, man, I did so good for so long. Well, that's not true. To that's the not Navy. True. I was like, I was where you are controlled to some extent, but there's a there's a boot camp was no problem. Yeah, boot camp was a piece of cake, and then uh, I tested into a program for. Um, I was supposed to do six years, right? So I, I signed up for six years so that I could do advanced electronics training. Mm. Um, but I had to go to sea first for two years, and then I would come back from C my school. <clears throat> no, to the to the ship. Oh, sea, yeah, yeah. So, that, so I did a school, then I went to the ship for two years, then I came back from my sea school. Well, on the ship, I got in trouble. Uh, had a buddy, Dwayne, long live Dwayne, and uh, we we're drinking and partying and living the Navy life. And, you know, I mean, I still stole, but not as much just cause didn't need it. And, you know, we got paid all the time. I was living on the ship, so didn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of need to do that, but we drank a lot. Um, you know, we'd go down to Mexico, down to TJ and just get yeah. blind, blind drunk. Like can't even make it back across the border drunk. And we'd, you know, all that kind of nonsense I remember those days yeah yeah so like trying to find him trying to find the car you know no car keys great like take a cab to the ship go on the ship get your spare keys take a cab back all just drunk 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 yeah and uh but i guess this was like 1990 80 88 to 92 yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah. uh 88 to 90 i was on the ship hmm. what and ship was this the truxton it was a nuclear cruiser out of san diego Do you remember the katie hawk was here yeah in 91 yeah I, I was on that ship yeah i came in at 91. my dad was on the midway oh my god and it's here now as a museum wow yeah um so i you know i got in a fair amount of trouble <clears throat> but not that much when I was at sea, like when, when I was on the ship. Um, but I was still, I was still scamming. Like they, I remember when, when ATMs came out, like you could open a bank account and take money out at the ATM, but it took a minute for the money to like actually show up, not in your account. So like I could open an account, put in a couple hundred bucks, go to an ATM, take out 200 drive down the street, take out another 200, drive down the street, take another 200. You take $1,000 out on a $200 account and who cares? Like, what are they going to do? And I did that sort of stuff and just, just nonsense, right? Just yeah. for, you know, no particular reason, I guess. Uh, yeah, because you could. Because I could. And there were no consequences. Like, there were just no consequences. All right, and, and so... Did you make the full four years in the Navy? So or no, was, six. It was supposed to be six. Um, so I, I managed um, two years on the ship, but I was, I'd gotten in trouble. I'd, I'd done some things. And um, when I went, they transferred me to sea school back at the anti-submarine warfare base here in San Diego. And they sent me with my service record. And I'd always been a forger. I'd always been a, you know, they say copy paste with, with, um, like Photoshop and all that stuff. But it used to be that you actually had to copy and paste. And I used to do that. So like photocopy it, trim it, glue it back on, take another copy, and you could forge any document. Um, and I've been doing forgery stuff since I was a kid. Um, forging checks, forging my mom's signature, forging whatever. Um, and so I edited my service record to make it look like I had more points to prepare for advancement. So that when I took the next advancement test, I would get promoted. And, uh, and I did that and I took the next advancement test and I got promoted and I gotten into, um, 
they had a very difficult, it was the most difficult school they had at the time. And that's what I got into um, for the sonar system that I was training on. It was brand new. It was super tough. um, And it was about a year long. And like 90% of the people that entered it failed it. So there's a lot of risk to it. And if you failed, you still had to do your extra two years. So the mm. deal was, if you sign up for four years, you just do four years. But if you want the advanced training, you've got to agree to extend to two more years. Right. So I agreed to extend for two more years. I got into that school. Um, well, during that school, someone introduced me to meth. Ooh. Yeah. And I remember the first little tiny line I did of meth that was like an inch, an inch long and, and just, it was so small. And I mean, a year later... I was doing lines as long as my arm and rocks you could pave your driveway with. Um, this was in the military. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I got out of hand fast. Um, so the small line, you were like, whoa. I loved meth. I mean, yeah. I did. So this was a guy that was in the military. Yeah. He was in school with me. And in uh, school. Yeah. He was in school with me. He didn't survive the school. I still finished at the top of the class. Where did he get the meth? He just. I don't know. I don't know. But he was like, I, I lived. He's like, dude, check this out. Yeah. Try this. He lived near Escondido. And we just like up for days. Everybody then? in meth, everybody in Escondido had meth. Eventually. Yeah. Like I, by the time the police. Yeah. Escondido was like the meth capital. Yeah. Yeah. It was super easy to get. Right. Super cheap. Yeah. Guys just made it in their bathtubs. One of my other guests was uh, the same area. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was nuts. So then you, how often are you doing it once he introduced it to you? About every day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And morning, noon, and night, like, and I would go, like, I would go days and weeks without sleep, but I was still performing in this school, um, and I was outperforming the other students. Um, and this guy was doing it morning, day, and night as well. I don't know. I think I, I, man, I passed him right away, and pretty soon he was like, man, I, I can't, I can't do what you're doing. Like he was probably just still doing a little bit. Yeah. He managed to keep his marriage together, and you weren't and, married at this point. I right? was, so I, I. Um, I met a very nice girl uh, who had no business marrying me. She thought I was a nice guy. Mm. And uh, I was young. I mean, I was 19 years yeah, old or something really like young. that, 20. And um, we got married very young. And um, I don't, I met her when I was on the ship. So it was before I started doing meth. And, uh, but I was, you know, partying and, and doing other things and still taking advantage, um, you know. I'd get, I'd get restricted to shore duty because I got in trouble in the Navy and then, or restricted to the base and you had to do stuff. You had to work or do whatever. Well, they put me on security patrol to patrol the barracks. Well, I just go through the barracks and check and see who left their lockers open and just take their shit. Like that was, you don't put me in charge of (laughs) patrolling security. Like I'm the guy that just stole everything. Right. Uh, it was, it was dumb. These people had no sense whatsoever. Um, the so guy I'm, that's stealing stuff, is let's secure- put him in charge of watching for other people that are going to steal stuff. Right. The- right. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Man. Just walk through they all the They just gave you the keys. Yeah. So dumb. What else? What, I mean, what do you, what, what do you expect, expect me to do? Expect- <laughs> what do you expect me to do? I haven't changed, you know, you just caught me. Like and this is my consequence. I sleep on base for for a few months and and oh my gosh, you know, so did you live off base with your wife? Yeah, so we lived in Escondido, um, and and the base what North Island? Uh, no, so either the ASW base in Point Loma, the mm, right. Warfare yeah, base in Point Loma, or Thirty uh, Second Street. When I was okay. on the ship, it was Thirty Second Street. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, 
So we lived off base. Um, yeah. And, and now here you're doing um, meth. Yeah. Did the wife know you're doing meth? No. No, I was doing meth and smoking Didn't pot with a neighbor. that you're out of your mind? Like, because when you're up for days, man, you're just squirrely. So I, I got a second job. I got a night job working at a convenience store to cover because then I could just be up all night. It's like, babe, we need some extra money. Like, the Navy didn't pay a lot. So yeah. she had a horse, and so we had expenses and bills and things like that. She worked. Um, so that was my, my cover. Like, we just, we need the extra money. So I go work at the convenience store. Stole from there, too. Figured it out. And, and so now, um, okay, so how long did you make it with her? Uh, we, until after I got out of the Navy. So I, um, four years in, I was getting in trouble again. I'd, so I'd made it up to E5, and I'd been demoted back down three times at Captain's Mast and was down at like E2 or something like that. And uh, I'm going up in front of Mast again. What, and, what did you keep getting demoted for, to name it? A wall, uh, drugs, uh, just in, whatever. Yeah, forgery. Um, you got caught forging. Yeah. So when I when I I edited my service record. Yeah. This is the dumbest thing. I edited my service record so that I could get the promotion. Well, one of the guys that was on my ship got assigned to the same shore base that I was, and he saw that I was promoted, and he saw that I was wearing an insignia that I shouldn't have had, but that was part of what I added in my service record. So he ratted me out a little guy and uh so he rats me out and i go in front of captain's mast and they're demoting me again for forging that in my service record right so i survived that i get demoted again i finish my school i finish my asw school top of the class there were only a couple of us left like after a year everybody else got dropped um because it's really hard um and you needed to be able to think like a computer, right? Yeah. You needed to be able to think logic, like logic flows and diagrams and stacks of schematics, like two stacks this high. Yeah. And um, so we, I'm, I'm getting demoted again. Well, like I said, so they didn't have me doing the patrol this time. They put me to work in the personnel office. So I know that I'm getting ready to go up to captain's mast and I'm, I'm coming up on my four year anniversary. So I grab my service record and I take out my two-year extension and I throw it in the trash. So a few days later, I go up in front of Captain's Mast and I'm supposed to do two more years yeah. and I'm getting busted back down to E1. 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 <laughs> e1 to five to one. Oh like that, my you know. gosh. And uh, so I've been in four years and going back to like boot camp rank. Yeah. And uh, I go in front of Captain's Mast and he's he's like demoting me and restricting me to the base uh and then he he sees that my discharge date is coming up but my two-year extension's not there anymore so he assumed i had a four-year extension or a four-year enlistment there was no two-year extension and he goes well i see you're getting discharged in a couple weeks and that your enlistment's up so I'm going to demote you to E1. I'm going to give you an other than honorable discharge. And you're never allowed to return to this base again, as long as you live. So, okay, great. Let's go. So we finish captain's mast. I go downstairs. They send my service record down to me. I type up my discharge, honorable, of course. And <laughs> I, you gave me other than honorable. You let me 
edit my service record. Like I was in trouble for editing my service record. So they put me in the department where I could edit my service record. <laughs> so I took out my two-year extension, threw it in the trash. Because so, if I had to do two more years as an E1, I was like AWOL. Like, oh, forget, forget it. it. Forget it. This isn't – kick me out. Kick me out. So they kicked me out. And they gave me other than honorable. And But then they sent my record to me and said, type it up. Okay, well, honorable. Like, wh why wouldn't I? Yeah. What are they expecting? Right. Again, like you put me in charge. You put me in a place where, like, I don't know what you thought was going to happen. Yeah. Like, why would you? You don't want me on security patrol. You don't want me where the records are being kept or held. Like, I don't know what you want to do with me, but it's not those and things. And so did you actually get out honorable? Yeah, I did. Honorable discharge. To this day? To this day. Yeah. Oh 20, 30 years. What is it? Uh, 92. Yeah. yeah. So 30 years? 30, 31 years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So statute, statute of limitations got to be <laughs> right. up yeah, on, so, on all this stuff. Yeah, hopefully this podcast doesn't. I mean, whatever. They can go back and fix it now if they want. Yeah, I don't matter. care. It doesn't right. matter. I could be lying now. I was a liar, remember? That's right. That's true. Yeah. yeah. This could be totally fabricated. Could be. I doubt they still have the captain's mask records from that hearing 30 years 30 ago. 30 years right? ago. This was before computers. They probably burned your stuff. Right. Get rid of this guy. I don't even want Personal computers weren't a thing then. The Navy did just started like working with computers, but none of the records were uh, electronic. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, they're all actual paper. Yeah, everything was actual paper. All right, so move on to. So I get out of the Navy. Yeah. I'm spiraling because I'm doing a lot of meth. My wife was pregnant. We drinking a lot of alcohol too. Not as much. Like yeah. alcohol and meth don't really no don't really mix. Um, ecstasy and alcohol—that's a different story. But yeah. uh, you know, meth and alcohol wasn't a wasn't a thing. Um, and I was like, I wasn't doing good, and I knew it. But like, I didn't know how to get out of it. Um, and I—you got divorced? Not yet. Like I was, I was. Um, we moved from Escondido to Oceanside. My wife was pregnant. I was still doing meth, but I was trying to trying to do something, right? Trying to. I, I was smart. I got a job doing some electronics work. Um, and that's when I first started doing computers um, or networking. Like someone asked me if they thought, if I thought I could network some computers together. But I was, I hadn't smoked pot in probably 15 years. And uh, someone said, hey, you know, you want to, you want to smoke some pot? And I, I said, yeah. So that was a mistake. Because with with meth you're just going like you're just up yeah. here all yeah. the time right so i smoked some pot and i was riding my motorcycle from escondido to oceanside along the 78 and everything just slowed way down right and i for the first time in years got a really good look about at, at, at what was happening in my life the person that i was the people that i was harming and the amount of meth that i was doing and just all of that and it, everything got very slowed down and very real and i i was able to take a look at kind of what was actually who i was and what i was doing and i pulled over on the 78 in the center divider and took my helmet off and just sat there for a few minutes and i made a decision at that point that i was going to do meth until it killed me um because i did not like it was just so much to try to put back together and I was tired of hurting people, but I didn't really see a way out. And I knew that the amount of meth that I was doing pretty soon, it had to kill me. Like it just had to. Yeah. Um, and, um, but I'm, turns out hard to kill. Um, you and you're doing lines the size of your arm. Just. Yeah. Like, and, and like other people were 
having really bad reactions. People were dying and people were, you know, losing their minds. Uh, where were you doing? Were you doing like in, in like crack houses with this stuff or? Uh, no, like it's funny. I was in crack houses when I was 14. Like I'd skip school and the guys and we drive up to Springfield and walk into a crack house and people are just laid out on mattresses and shooting up and doing all that stuff. But I, I got the math and I'd do it at work or I'd do it, you know, like everywhere. Everywhere I went, I did math. And you were sniffing it the whole time? Did yeah. You, or did you ever start shooting? I, no, I never. It's it's. I wanted to to shoot it, um, but I figured that would probably be the end of it. Yeah. Um, when my wife was pregnant, like we would go down to Kaiser because she was having trouble with her pregnancy anxiety. Gee, I wonder why. And like I would get down there and go in the bathroom and cut a line. I would do a line on the way down on the rearview mirror. I would like I just always she saw was, you do this. No. No, she never saw any of it. Um, like I was good at hiding, right? So nobody ever saw anything. And people would think, well, something's going on, but they'd have they have no idea what. Um, but after my son was born, um, he was like two weeks old, and she'd had enough, and she left. And um, she had a friend who had a boyfriend that I knew was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called him. This was in... May of 92, two months after I got out of the Navy. And um, I called him and I just said, you know, I I need help. Like, I, well, I got to figure some shit out here. And, and, and family just left and just everything fell apart. Um, and so he came over and we talked and I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Um, I didn't want to go to Narcotics Anonymous because they... A different vibe, yeah. Um, and I just didn't identify with the the whole druggy culture, even though I did all the drugs. Yeah. Um, so I I I managed to sober up, and that was in ninety two. Ninety two, yeah. But like so, I, six months later, I got arrested for another felony. Like or so, you got off the 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 meth. I got off meth. Yeah. Quit drinking, quit doing drugs, uh, but didn't quit stealing, didn't quit scamming, didn't quit, um, you know. I tried to do better, and I did to some extent. Like, um, I found things to occupy myself. I found a couple of friends that I could hang out with and throw cards all night long with and, you know, just run around and still kind of ran amok, but yeah. in a in a less destructive way, right? So stay out all night, just drive down to Mexico, find a beach, go walk, explore, cliff, climb, whatever. Um, met a guy and we started playing beach volleyball together uh, every Sunday. We'd play for six hours, man, and just slam it. Um, so I found things to keep me busy every night. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but still got arrested, still got arrested four or five times over the next few years. Um, for what? Theft, mainly. Um, yeah. Like, give me, give me some of your worst. Like, what was uh, theft? How? Well, either stealing from. So I went to work for NCR. Yeah. Um, and I would just take hard drives and then go sell them at a computer retail store, resale store. But sooner or later, they figured out that hard drives were missing and they had cameras. So there was that. Um, and you know, I got probation. I um, 
and that you know i was but i was i was trying to do the right thing then yeah. kind of yeah uh as much as i knew how but if money got tight and I, I i didn't know how to manage money like i had no respect for money at all like because yeah. i just could always get more right like from the time i was a little kid i knew how to get money um so i could work hard and get it or i could take it like there was just money laying around everywhere yeah um and you could easily manipulate people into giving you stuff um you know forge invoices and send them and 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 do fake business sales and um people just so when was the what was the first thing that that got you in big trouble uh so in 96 um so i'd stayed sober for a few years and was hanging out with this uh girl and we became very good friends and we hung out a lot played volleyball together played cards together uh and um we'd both been sober for almost five years <clears throat> but we just decided one day that we were going to drink so I grabbed a bottle of whiskey and uh, drank that. And then, I mean, within a week or two, we were doing math. And, you know, she was very much like me. Not not quite. Like nobody's, like, she was bad for her group, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, and her parents had had, had a rough time with her. Um, so we had a lot in common there. She was a little bit younger than me. Um, but we started doing meth together, started living together. Um, and I was, like I was stealing equipment. Like I, you know, I could set stuff up to where I would let Best Buy, they would think that I was purchasing for a business or whatever. And I could walk in and walk out with a, some computer equipment and sell that and, um, it was tough to keep a job when I was on meth, but I started doing, um, identity theft. So mm -hmm. credit card fraud. Yeah. And this was in 96, right? It was before the internet was a thing and, um, electronic records and electronic transactions. And so people just wrote their credit card numbers everywhere. Yeah. Um, and there was, uh, there were a few different stores where you could go into their dumpster at night and you'd find receipts with tons of credit card numbers. Um, C&R clothers used to, their tailoring slips, when you would take your suit for tailoring, they would write your credit card number on it, your name, your credit card number, your address. And then when you picked up all your clothes, they'd take all those receipts and they'd bundle them up and they'd throw them in the trash. It's like I walked over to C&R and I grabbed a little small grocery bag out and it had a hundred credit card numbers in it. Well, if you do a little research, you can find out which bank the credit card is from by the first four numbers, and then you can find that customer service number, and then you can call that customer service number and put in the zip code, which was also on the receipt, and they'll tell you when your payment is due, what your balance is, like all this stuff. So then you could just start using that card, and you knew that um, if the payment's due on the 15th, you can find out, do they pay it off every month? Are they carrying a balance? Right? All this stuff. So I had a few hundred different identities set up and I didn't use all of them, but it was still fun to do. Like it was something to occupy my mind and my time. And you know, I could do meth and create fake IDs. And, um, I had a, I had a, you know, there were a few people that we ran around with her brother and, and some other people. And, 
someone got in trouble for something and the cops ended up at my house and um or actually uh Frankie and I were doing something and and um outside of a business in Carlsbad and cops rolled up and I had a gun in the car and I was on probation so I wasn't supposed to have a gun. I should have said it was Frank's. He was a minor at the time, would have been no problem, but so they found me with a gun doing, you know, up to no good and uh went to the house and found all my stuff and all the IDs and stolen equipment and uh you know, files and files of of people's credit card information and and all this stuff. And so they arrested me of course and <clears throat> went to jail and bailed out and then uh didn't it didn't seem to fix it all right so a month later i got arrested again for so doing, did, you, did you get tried for that did you while i was waiting trial i got arrested again which they don't like uh so you got busted mm-hmm, got, got out. out on bail yep how'd you get on a bail paid uh 10 okay so uh funny the the bail bond agency that i went through they just loved me like I, I mean, they bailed me out four times in a couple of years, and they just—they thought I was a great guy. What just, agency was this? Aladdin so, Bail Bonds. Aladdin. Yeah, they had a T-shirt that said Aladdin Bail Bonds because jail sucks, <laughs> and they were right. And they were. Yeah, I mean, I had—I have six of those shirts. I did because you got one every time you bailed out. That's your so, mark. Yeah, that's great. Brand, and great they, branding. Like when you're when you're on bail and you get arrested again, they don't usually bail you out again, but they managed to. And um, so you were on. Bail when I committed another crime. And that's in California, that's an automatic two-year enhancement. So they were already trying to give me 36 years or something like that, 32 years. While you're waiting for trial? While I'm waiting for trial. What did you do? Like what? Probably more meth and more whatever. Yeah. Like I was, so we were, it, Carlsbad police, we, we were taunting them. They were trying to, like they were trying to arrest me every few days. Um, we had a, a little bit of a game going on. And... Um, like they came and raided our place and I had a safe, but like you don't keep anything of value in the safe. It's just a distraction. So they spent literally four and a half hours beating into this safe. And Desiree had the combination. She didn't give it to them. And uh, they finally, like they think they got all our stuff and they're going to rearrest us and everything else. And they finally pry this safe open and there's just nothing in there. And she just laughed at them. And, uh, and then she gave him the code and they punched in the code and the door opened. Like we were just taunting them and they were trying to, like they had me arrested on a Friday at a holiday weekend to try to make sure that I would spend just over nothing, right? Like yeah. just charges. So they could put, put me in over the weekend so I'd have to spend the weekend in jail and they knew that I'd get out. But my lawyer was good, man. I was out by Friday at two o'clock and I called him up like, hey, just want to let you know I'm out and not going to spend the weekend in jail, you piece of crap. So... um yeah, so I we were pretty defiant, but her mom kept ratting us out like, "Oh no, they're here. They moved, they're there because the cops would go look for us." And <sighs> so yeah, so they found us with drugs and other stolen property and little things, right? And so um they wanted to give us a lot of time, me, a lot of time. Yeah. Uh and uh I was getting ready to leave the country. Like I was out. I'm like, I'm not doing 30 years and I'm smart. I can go anywhere. I can survive anything. So pack your crap let's go we're out we're out through mexico and we'll we'll end up in europe we'll go somewhere right we're just out um but it turns out she was pregnant and uh that was and she liked her family like she thought she wasn't that hard yeah 
so she still wanted mm. you know relationship and uh as much as exciting as as things were with me it was just not going to be great um so i was in a spot like well i mean i'm not i'm not doing 30 years so and you're pregnant me in prison for 30 years isn't going to do you any good so you can join me or you can stay with your folks but either way i gotta go um and i was packed up and ready to go um and i got a call from my lawyer and he said hey the the judge that hates you is on vacation and the da that hates you is on vacation and the judge and the d that are sitting in i know him and i can get you a two-year deal so you'll do two years in state prison you'll serve a year serve 13 months but you know you'll do two years. He's like, can you do that? I said, hell yeah, I can do that. He said, be here in 15 minutes. I was there in 15 minutes. Like, just like that, signed the deal. And when the, when the judge and the DA came back the next week, there was nothing they could do. Like, deal was done. I'd been signed, sentenced, and headed off to state prison for a year. Uh, <clears throat> wow. Yeah. So That's nuts. Yeah, like super favor. Uh, I still don't have any idea how that happened um but thank god it did because that would have sucked right like i'd have just i'd have had to leave yeah you're done and uh <clears throat> so it meant that i could serve a year and get out and try to rebuild the family right and i did uh i, I spent some time um spent some time at donovan which is the maximum security in san diego and then i went up to a that was the 13 month stint yeah, so I started there, then went up to Northern California to a fire camp where they teach all the the yeah firefighters, um, all the prison, all the inmates that are going to be firefighters, and because prisoners fight fires in California, there's some of them. Yep, yep. So I went up there, but I knew I didn't want to fight fires because that's hard work, and I don't want to be out there scraping ground. So I became a clerk. Um, I knew how to type. I've done computer work. I was proficient. So I walked into the sheriff's off or the you know the um, marshal's office there and said i'll be a clerk for you and they're like can you type i said yeah about 80 words a minute and i said show me and i did and they're like you're hired so then i worked in with the officers which meant that i had access to things that the other inmates didn't which made me valuable in the inmates eyes which meant that i didn't have to play the bullcrap games as much like the the inmate games between race and yeah. and everything because it was super <clears throat> there were at Donovan, there were race riots. At, at Jamestown, there were race riots. Um, you know, people getting their heads stomped in and stabbed and, um, you know, expecting other people. Like, if you're white and you show up new, then the guys that have been there a while are going to have you prove your prove your loyalty. So you got to do something. And usually it's, you know, smash somebody else over the head or stab somebody or whatever else um and if you don't that was pretty much a given yeah and if you don't then you're outside the protection of your race and that was true for blacks and mexicans and and it was true for everybody um so you know you knew how to watch your back um you know don't make extended eye contact with people because people had just when i went into county jail here we we're playing cards playing spades and it's like you and me are partners and these two guys are partners and we're playing and this guy here reaches over and knocks this guy out knocks his own partner out at the table 
just smashed him in the face and knocked him out. Game over. Like, what the, what the hell? It's like, he looked at me wrong. He's your partner. Yeah. Like, he, you made a play that he might have found curious, right? Like, so that was the, you know, you figure out really quick how to, how to behave yourself or act in such a way that people are afraid to smash you in the face. Yeah. Um, so, but I had access to things. I could make things disappear. I could get things done. So before you established that type of clout, yeah, did you have to do anything? No, no. Uh, in in um, in county, I became a trustee, which meant that I had access to things. When I went into state time, so like when I was in Donovan, there was a football game, mixed race football game, and. But it was still like races against races, right? Yeah. Which is not a good idea. And some <laughs> guy goes up to make a catch, jumps up. Another guy clips him from underneath. He falls, gets hurt. Everybody stands up. Everybody rushes to the middle. Now we have a race fight, right? So when that happens, you stand up and you run to the middle. Like you don't, you don't stay seated and you don't run the other way. So I stood up and ran to the middle, like ready to, ready to have a fight with whoever's standing in front of me. Uh, but the guards fired off couple of rounds and everybody hit the ground and that was the end of the football game um at jamestown uh there were multiple um lockdowns and shots fired on the on the um on the quad because someone would get stabbed um or someone would get hit in the head with a pool ball or a weight or something like that um so like i was out there and if it's a fight, you fight, right? But nobody ever, I didn't have to do anything like that. Um, I, because I got, I like, I walked out of the intake, walked straight into the marshal's office and became a clerk because I knew that's where the yeah. power was, right? right? And it put me in a position where everybody wanted to be my friend. <clears throat> uh, I did the same thing in federal custody, right? So wow. I, I got to, <clears throat> um, I got to elevate myself put myself in a position where where i had authority and when i i left i left jamestown as a clerk went to a, a place here in hammett um no fences uh minimum security fire camp um it was perfect right um my my and it's this is just on the two-year yeah this is just on the two-year uh came here had you not done that do you think you would have been in big trouble it would have been rough I don't know. Like I, I could always take care of myself. Um, I don't think so. Yeah. Like, and I, and I wouldn't have cared. Like if they asked me to stab somebody, I'd have stabbed somebody. I didn't care. Like, yeah, like no problem. Why would I care? Like, it's just a thing you do. Right. I'd done things in my life that were violent, that stabbing somebody is no different than hitting them in the throat. Yeah. So you just, it's just another thing that, that you have to do. So you just do it. Yep. Right. Doesn't do any good to feel one way or another about it. <clears throat> right. And I wasn't burdened with feelings, so it was no problem. Uh, I knew I knew going in because there were guys that I was in AA with that that told me like expect, you know, expect this racially, expect that because they yeah. had done time, whatever else. So I knew what I was getting into, um, and I was fine with it. Like you know, you you do the deal, you pay the you pay the price. Like right. you, you you just that's where you're at. Yep. That's where you put yourself. So you go handle it and you survive it and you do what you got to do. So, um, 
you know, it was no different than anything else. Um, and I would have been fine. Like and then I, once you got out of there. Yeah. So I, I went to the minimum security. <clears throat> I got in trouble because I, they have a store that inmates can buy stuff from tobacco and whatever else. And I picked the lock to the store when I was a clerk and took some stuff out of it. And that's not why I got in trouble. I got in trouble because I had my wife, my, she wasn't my wife yet, but my girlfriend who was pregnant, I had her come up and visit me at the camp and I walked out into the bushes and we fooled around and someone got mad because I'd only been there three days when I had her come up and they thought that was arrogant and that I should have stayed there longer before I had her come up. Like, the hell are you talking about? Anyway, so the, they shipped me over to another camp with a fence. <clears throat> so clerked there for a while. Um, it was just, you know, did my thing. Yeah. Got, got in trouble as a clerk because I was taking some liberties and then became a baker, which was fine. I grew up working in restaurants and knew how to bake. And the bakers actually had a lot of clout because they had access to yeast and people liked yeast for making alcohol. And so, you, yeah. you know, plus people like sweets. You're making cinnamon rolls all night long. So you bring a guy a bag of cinnamon rolls and you got friends and protection. And uh, I only had two fights there. Uh, one was like three days before I got out. So I had to be careful not to do anything that could pick me up an assault charge. Yeah. But like I walked into the barracks and there's a guy on the door said, hey, somebody wants to talk to you. So I go to walk over there to talk to him. And there's a guard. And one of the inmates is on the door and he was my former cellmate. And when you walk into a room or a bathroom and there's somebody watching the door, you know you're about to have a fight. Yeah. Right? So as soon as I saw him, I knew what was going on. And this little guy, Cowboy, was his nickname. Little. Uh, he wasn't that little, but he was shorter than me. And uh, <clears throat> he got bent out of shape because I had said something that offended him. And he wanted to... I'd said it in front of other people and he wanted to save face or something. So I go walking in and... I walk straight towards him and he starts talking about how we're going to have a fight. Well, people always want to talk about how they're going to have a fight. Yeah, just fight. Just fight. So by the time he started talking, man, I was just all over him and smashed him and put him in the toilet and left him there and told the guy on the way out, if you ever watch the door against me again, I'll bury you and walked out of there. That was your old cellmate was the guy yeah. watching the door. Yeah. Like you're going to watch the door for this guy. This little guy just folded up and stuffed in the toilet. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Like, bad choice. And, and so what did you get? Did you get I was just meaner than everybody. Like, my little brother, like, nobody talked to me forever, but my little brother told people, he's like, man, other people had a line they wouldn't cross. Brian never had a line he wouldn't cross. And I didn't. Like, I just didn't. I knew I was meaner than everybody. Yeah. I knew I was capable of things that other people would only think about mm. doing. And I would just do them. And that's how they, they, they got you tested for so, to be an associate. Yeah, when I, was, when, I, when I got expelled from school in 10th grade, uh, <clears throat> they had me tested once as a freshman, and then they tested me again when I was a sophomore. Um, and the school required the testing because they weren't going to let me back into school if I didn't show some sort of result. Well, I didn't show those results. Um, so, you know. Wow. Yeah, they had me, they had me tested. turns out... I don't think like other people and I didn't have a they said in that test they came back and told my parents Brian can run a perfect con for six months he can do nothing but lie for six months at least and he'll tell a perfect story every single time and you'll never trip him up and he'll never make a mistake and I was really proud of that like I 
I was, um, I've been working on a book, um, Think Like a Sociopath, and um, working with an author who's helping me write it. And as I was going through this, like when I told a lie, it became my reality. Like I made my own reality. So other people would lie and they have to, they say, oh, you know, if you tell the truth, you never have to remember what you, right. the lies you told, right. right? Well, that was never a problem for me. Because when I said something, it became my reality and I lived it. Like I was a chameleon, I could do anything, I could become anyone and I could be working this manipulation with this group of people and this manipulation with this group of people and I could be two totally different people in each one and I would never confuse them and never make a mistake and never trip. Um, because I, I had the ability to live in multiple realities at the same time. I understood very clearly who I was in each one and it was just no problem. Yeah. That was just, that was my reality with that, with that group of people. The trick is never let those two groups right. touch. Right. Right. That's the only, that's, that's the, the only, only thing you have to do. And that's pretty easy to do. Like there's the good kids, there's the druggies, there's the thieves, there's the right, whatever the different yep. groups are. Um, there's the church. Um, and then, so then, okay, we got to fast forward now. Yeah. Give me, give me the, um, so you got out of prison, Yep. right? <clears throat> How fast were you? Did you give me the scenario from within there? a year? I stole a quarter of a million, half million dollars worth of equipment and got married, bought a house. And you had two kids at this point. One, one. Yeah. So got out. Uh, my daughter, uh, was born like. She was born in February. What about that? Didn't you have one prior though? I did. Yeah. So we didn't have much relationship. Okay. We, we tried when I was sober during that time. Um, but my ex-wife and her family, she was living with her family and they made it very difficult and I didn't make it any better. Um, yeah. So yeah. So we didn't have much relationship, yep. um, even though we did try. And then when I got out, got married and had my oldest daughter. She was born in February. I got out in June. Um, and I got out, went right to work as a network engineer, um, started with a company, worked there for a year. After a year, I bought a house, like got my credit up, did, did everything. Um, actually I didn't steal anything the first year. It was after we bought the house. Um, then I stole about, half a million dollars worth of equipment how'd that work there was a bunch of equipment in a warehouse that i knew about and i helped myself to it took it out of state sold it well i had been taking little bits at a time like little bits of time and then i thought i should just take the whole thing like their security sucks and i i wanted to buy a house so I needed money. Yeah. So I took it. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, okay. There's a lot of detail there, but I don't know. That was, that was in, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on that or who the hell is going to hear this podcast. But yeah, there was a lot of equipment sitting okay. around. It so was, you didn't get busted for that? No, I didn't. Well, I actually, I got arrested for it. Yeah. Uh, but I had moved on and there was really like, I got charged and then the charges got dismissed. Like before I could even get a lawyer. Right. So yeah. I don't know what happened but okay it didn't it didn't come back to me um so when was the next thing that came back to you uh so that was um 
after 9-11, like I was, had my own consulting business and was doing, doing good. Um, wasn't really stealing that much, was married, had two kids, uh, actually just was having a third and was flying high. Business was good, um, really high performing. And um, 9-11 happened and I lost all my contracts and um, we ended up losing our house, right? We couldn't afford it. We, all my contracts dried up. The market was flooded with network engineers. There was no work. Um, and so for about a year, I was mostly out of work. Like we'd build like $300,000 from January to September. Then 9-11 happens. And in the next 12 months, I think we build $30,000. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was not, it was not good. So we moved out of our house and um, I was trying to hold it together, right? And couldn't get work. And I had a buddy who had a telecom business and, and we were like, we were on our last leg. Like we were a week away from getting evicted or two weeks away from getting evicted and just losing it all. And um, my son, he had had uh, pretty severe allergies and needed medication and we couldn't afford the medication. It was just like stuff was really bad. And um, a friend had a telecommunications company. He had a customer in Costa Rica who ran a casino, online casino and, and whatever, and he needed to expand his casino. So we needed networking equipment and someone to do the work. Well, I'm the guy. So I sourced the equipment. I put the deal together and I'm going to earn like, I don't know, 30K on the equipment plus get all the service hours. So I'm thinking the end is near, right? We're, we're, we're going to be, we're going to be good. Um, and so I put the deal together and it's two days before the deal's supposed to go through and the vendor calls up and says, yeah, I'm not going to go through with the deal because the customer's in Costa Rica. He thought the customer was my buddy's telecommunications company in Vista. It's like the, the customer's in Costa Rica. I don't want to ship to Costa Rica. I don't want to, I want to make sure I get paid, blah, blah, blah. So the deal fell through. The casino owner was pissed, right? He had, he was ready to expand and he said, you've got three days to put this deal together or it's done. Well, I do what I do best. So I started setting up fake companies and I set up a, a fake escrow company, and a couple of other companies. Um, and I found two new vendors that could source the equipment. And I told them that funds were being transferred into escrow and, uh, it was the escrow company that I'd created and I had multiple emails and identities and phone numbers and, and all that stuff, burner phones to do the different stuff. And, um, just me and my laptop and creating fake documents, sending them, faxing them. Um, well, I had both the vendors were on the East coast and I picked an address, literally opened up a Thomas brothers guide and picked an address in Santa Monica for the escrow company at random, flipped open the page, put my finger on a map, and that was the address for the escrow company. So I faxed the contracts to the East Coast, and um, the contract smudged. The guy that owned the, um, the sourcing company for the computer equipment, his wife has a sister who lives in Santa Monica, block from the address that I picked at random. And they're on the phone to her, just at, at random. And he's like, hey, since you're there, would you mind stopping by this escrow company and picking up a copy of the contract and then sending it over to me? And she says, sure, no problem. And she goes to the escrow company and there's nothing there, right? 
So they get scared and they call the FBI and uh, I go to Vegas to pick up this equipment like happy as a pig in poop because I'm about to get unstuck and it was the least illegal thing I'd ever done in my life. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was the, like I wasn't even trying to steal, right? I was just, tr just trying to get the deal done, right? So, um, but it was a million dollars worth of equipment and that's a big deal. And so the FBI arrests me and were out there when you went to go get it? Yeah, or? in Vegas. Um, in Vegas. So they pick me up in Vegas. They book me in. They they take me. They take my laptop. And um, I'm not allowed to, like, no phone calls, no lawyer, no no nothing, right? I'm like, well, let me talk to a lawyer. Like, we don't know your lawyer's not in on it. Because I had all these names and all these phone numbers and all yeah. these. It looked like there were a dozen people running a multitude of roles and cons and it was all just me and my laptop which really scared the crap out of them um so i'm like well just open up the phone book put your finger on a lawyer and call him like no no lawyer no nothing so they book me in they book me into solitary no books no tv no inmate contact no ability to to talk to anybody or do anything and i'm locked in this solitary cell and i'm a little upset because like i wasn't even really trying to do anything wrong i was just you know, hustling to get the deal done. Yeah. And I, um, I felt something in my mattress <clears throat> and it was, I was excited cause you know, I'd been in jail and prison and we'd stuffed tobacco in mattresses for people and, and sent them down to the solitary cells and things like that. And I thought, nice. Somebody left me a care package, candy bar, tobacco, something. And uh, it wasn't, <clears throat> I pulled it out. It was a little book, maybe five inches by nine inches called From Prison to Praise. That's oh, great, Bible book, right? So by a guy called Merlin Carruthers. And Merlin used to run a church here in Escondido in the late 70s. And um, I was disappointed, obviously, that this was the book. And, uh, but, you know, after a while, I was bored. So I started reading this book. And this book just talked about um, being grateful. Pretty simple. Be grateful. Be grateful in all times for all things and, you know, yada, yada. And I'm reading this book and I'm, you know, understanding that I'd come to a place in my life again, like, so second time in seven years facing over 30 years in prison, right? Because with, <clears throat> with wire fraud, with federal, they have sentencing guidelines. And so with wire fraud, just the act of wire fraud, if you weren't trying to steal a cent, lying to gain a business advantage on an email will get you zero to eight months in prison. And then for every dollar amount, up, the time goes up. Well, at $800,000 to a million or whatever it was, it was 32 years. And the feds were, I mean, they had my laptop. They had me in, the, they were certain I was getting 32 years. And uh, anyway, so I started reading this book and uh, I just had, I guess I just had had enough and wanted to believe that there was a chance that I could live a life that didn't look like this. Because the first time I was facing life, I was doing meth and yeah. I was running and there were guns and there was violence and all that stuff, right? Like I was trying to be that person. Now here I am doing the best I can, not high, not drunk, not trying to hurt anybody, 
just trying to do the right, the right thing. Right. And I end up facing life in prison again. It's like, well, it's not the drugs then, and it's not the meth, and it's not whatever. Like, it's you. It's you. Like, you got yourself here again. Um, and it didn't look like there was a lot of way out, right? So even though I knew I wasn't trying to steal anything, I, they didn't matter that I could prove it. So anyway, I, I started reading this book, and at some point, things – like, I just – I had this very dramatic encounter, right? Um like the whole the whole bright light thing happened, right? Bright lights, the walls kind of just faded away, and I was just in the presence of something, right? And it was it was transformative, right? Like there was I cried out to some extent, and there was an answer, which still surprises me right because like there was no reason if god's real there's no reason for him to answer me right right like i i'm the guy that stole from this church i'm the guy that led other people into you know all the good girls that were walking with him weren't after they met me right there were people that were on the right track and after i tore through their life they were not on the right track anymore and and I did a lot of damage and hurt a lot of people. And there was no reason for him to show up. None. Yeah. What's, like, like you made your bed, lie in it. Right. You know, no, I ain't mad at you, but like you did this. Uh, and so that was, that was really something, right? Like I knew who I was. I knew the kind of person that I was. I knew what I was capable of. And for some reason, he still showed up in that, in that cell. And uh, he became very real to me in that moment. And I got, I'll say set free of a bunch of stuff in that, in that time. Now, it still took some time. Like, I was able to... I flew Con Air from Vegas to San Diego and, you know, uh, got out, was out on bail. And I wasn't allowed to use any electronic devices. I wasn't allowed to touch a computer. I wasn't allowed to send or receive data electronic. Like, I couldn't fax, email, send text messages, nothing electronic. Uh, voice calls only. Had the FBI following me around because um, they still wanted to know if it was all just me. And right. They're telling my wife at the time, like, Brian's getting 30 years plus. Like, there's, and they, they're not kidding. Like, they, the FBI has a 90, like a 98% conviction rate. Nobody's that good at their job. Yeah. Not in the government. Right. But they get everybody. Uh, wow. And, and they get to do really dirty stuff. Like, you know, you can sign a plea agreement with them and you're bound to it, but they're not. So, like, you sign for three years and you go in front of the judge and they're like, yeah, we think you should give them 12 and the judge can give you 12. You can't back out of the plea agreement, but they can they can do whatever they want to, mm. right? Yeah. They can lie to you, but you can't lie to them. Lying to them is a crime. So, wow. Yeah, it was it was an interesting uh couple years. And like I didn't get out of that cell and become perfect, right? Like I knew that I'd had a real encounter. I knew that something had changed. Yeah. But 
you know, instincts still kick in. And when you're in fear and you're a thief, you steal, right? And it took some time for that to walk its way out um, and work its way out. Uh, it took some time for me to figure out how to be a person. So I, um, I waited two and a half years for sentencing. I worked for my buddy who had a tree service. I delivered pizzas. Um, like I did whatever I could do to keep a roof over my head. My wife had left. She left. Yeah. Yeah. When the FBI showed up, she, she bounced, um, took the kids. Um, they were close by and I still got to see them. Um, I actually rented a house a mile from her. Um, so I could still see my kids. Um, and walk that out for a couple years before I finally got sentenced. Um, I managed to, like my lawyer was an absolute disaster. Like I really thought, well, I was five minutes, like the judge told me. Uh, so I was tried in the central district of California, federal court. And uh, I'm at sentencing. Cause like I admitted to the wire fraud, but not to the dollar amount, right? Cause that was like, they had my laptop. They knew what I did. So I pled guilty right away but not to the dollar amount. So two and a half years, I'm waiting to get sentenced. And I finally, I'm going in front of the judge for sentencing. And uh, my lawyer is doing a horrible job of representing my case. I only have one witness and it's the guy who owned the telecommunications company, Greg. And um, he would not, he had not talked to Greg in two and a half years. Hadn't talked to him, hadn't interviewed him. So Greg and I stayed up talking the two nights before the sentencing I let him know the questions that we would be asking so that he was prepared to answer them and just tell the truth. Like that should be enough. Um, so my lawyer's blowing it. He's not asking the right questions. And I had stopped the sentencing hearing, pulled my lawyer over, handed him a written piece of paper and said, ask these questions exactly as they're written. And when you're done, stop talking. So he read through the questions one at a time. Greg answered them. He stopped. And the judge looked at the, um, the U.S. attorney and said, do you have an answer to that testimony? And they said, no, we, we just think that he might be lying. And the judge said, well, you've had two and a half years to investigate this. He's the only witness. You didn't. You, you don't, do you have anything to prove that he's lying or say anything? And they said, no, but Brian's a really bad guy. And uh, the judge agreed that I was a really bad guy, but she couldn't do anything about it because Greg was pretty irrefutable, right? And Greg has no reason to, to lie. He's not going to risk his business in front. You don't just lie to the ADA and, and you know, uh, or to the, the U.S. attorney. Um, so she told me I was five minutes away from giving you 32 years. Uh, but because of this testimony, I can't. So I'm going to give you the maximum I'm allowed to give you, which was eight months. And if I have my way, you'll never touch a computer again as long as you live. Uh, so I had six more months to serve because I'd served two months before I got out. So she and I go for six months, um, got out right before Christmas in 2005. And uh, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what to do now. Like I'd met God, but I was Catholic and that didn't seem right. Yeah. Like Catholics aren't very 
there's no there's no no spirit in the room a lot of the time, right? So like um I try different events like charismatic Catholics and things like that to try to find him. And um right after Easter my buddy called me up, my one friend, and said, Hey, I my mom invited me to this church and I went and it seems like the pastor might be the real deal. So that was uh Summit Church in San Marcos and I went there, I met Pastor Daniel and Teresa and met some people there. And it was a small church, you know, a few hundred people. And um, I I had begun to hear what I thought was God, and I was trying to be obedient. Um, and when I got to that church, I really felt like I heard him say, go to this church, serve everyone in the church. Like anybody in this church asks you to do something, you say yes. Yeah. And don't offer your opinion. Don't try to fix anything. Nobody needs to know how smart you are. Just go, just shut up and go serve them. Go teach kids church and don't date till I say stop. That was my instructions. Like go do those things till I say stop. So I went to that church, um, started teaching kids church. Like what the hell do I know about? I'm like, I'm fresh out of like prison and, but I, um, started going through Bible college there. I got introduced to, um, Bethel church and pastor Bill Johnson from that. Uh, yep. and so like I was working for my buddy's tree service and climbing trees and humping brush and dragging, dragging trees. And, um, <coughs> but I was able to listen to Bethel podcasts and I had like 300 podcasts on my phone. And I just got fed, like I learned, like Mm -hmm. I learned a little bit about who God was, about what was expected of me, about what it meant to be a person. Um, And I got brought into this church that was very relational. Um, They did a lot of like uh, acting and dramas and skits and stuff, which I love. Like I'm I'm a natural actor, of course, right? Being a lifelong con man. And um, so I got to share my testimony a little bit there and got brought in and it was seven years before he said stop. Like it was, it was seven years, six, seven years, and then he's like, "Okay, you can date now, right?" But it was a long time of like, people would just show up to church with a laptop and hand it to me and say, "Can you have this fixed by Thursday?" Like people I don't even know. I'm like, yeah, yeah okay, I can have that fixed for you by Thursday. Like my job was to just go and say yes, figure out how to be a person, and I had ruined two marriages, you know broken a lot of people, damaged a lot of people. And so that was the, my time to um, to figure out my relationship with him to where when I'm afraid or when there's trouble or when there's danger, I run to him. And mm. I don't run to I don't run to stealing. Right. I don't run to drugs. I don't run to alcohol. I don't run to porn. I don't run to sex. I don't run to people. Or, or anything that would cause me to be someone who's just out there taking again, right? So I learned how to give freely. Um, and I, I did that for a lot of years, right? And then it was great. Like it was the best time of my life. Um, yep. I went to, I went on missions trips to Uganda and places like that and got to, got to see people, got to serve people, got to figure out like and and again i in the beginning i'm just kind of going through the motions because i certainly wasn't feeling anything um but over time right yeah um 
there's that scripture, you know, take away the heart of stone, give me a heart of flesh. And I prayed that, like, because I was tired of being a robot. I was tired of being somebody who was capable of anything with no, no remorse. And, um, and eventually that, that kind of happened, right? Like I, I started feeling things and understanding being passionate about serving people. And my life became, um, instead of taking, right, now, now I'm here to serve, right? So my, my, my grand plans of being a, a um, criminal, now I build grand plans of, of how to serve and how to transform and how to um, show people where they're being scammed and build systems and infrastructure that will allow people to step into something better, right? Step out of the game, step out of the con, um, and understand that, you know, things in the world right now are pretty nuts and yeah. everything's a game. Um, and I, I mean, totally. I see it from way back, right? Like, um, you know, if you think the politicians, I don't care what party you're in, man, but if you think they're on your side, man, you're a sucker. Yeah, totally. Like, there's just the biggest, I mean, they got you fighting each other. Right. And, and $40 trillion is just out the door, right? They've spent every dollar they've ever taken from you and $31 trillion more. Like, what are you, what are you mad at that guy for? Yeah. He didn't do it. it what was it, the, the, the audit recently with the Pentagon that, yeah. that somehow lost $2 trillion of... They can't find $2 trillion of cash and, and $800 million worth of equipment. <laughs> but they're coming after your $600 Venmo transactions. Right. They hired 86,000 IRS to go after landscapers, right? They just imported... You know, a bunch of they've they've allowed a bunch of illegals across the border, which whatever. But now these people are coming here for a better life. They don't understand. They're the suckers, man. Yeah. They need you here because they need your money. That's right. They need your money. They need your social security revenue. They need your tax revenue. And they just hired eighty six thousand IRS agents to audit the crap out of you. Take your truck. Take your equipment. Empty your bank account. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get. We can go down this road. They're suckers. Exactly. They're the. All right. So 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 then, give, give me that. We gotta we gotta land this plane mm -hmm. here. Give me, give me from that trajectory to where you are now. Like, how did you get to uh, awaken? So I, um, I served at Summit for for a long time. Now, is there any like after that? Like, did you go? Did you go back at all? Did no, you? No. No. So I I haven't been arrested in twenty years. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. Like so, after after seven years, I could pass a background check. After fifteen years, I could pass an extended background check. But it's tough. Like I do IT work. I'm inside of systems, right? Yeah. Like I've worked for banks. I've worked for financial institutions. I've worked for healthcare institutions. And somehow, I I managed to get the work. Um, and I sometimes I passed a background check, and sometimes I didn't. Right. But over time, like it's not easy. Yeah. You know, rebuilding your life after blowing it up to the level that I did and having such an extensive criminal record, like none of it was easy, but it kind of was, right? Like I just went and I served and I tithed and I gave offerings and I, wherever I felt like God asked me to do something, I did it. Um, because like I shouldn't be there. I should still be locked up from either the first time or the second time, right? So I'm, every day I wake up, I'm not thinking about how to hurt people. And that's that's really strange for me. So like, I didn't get it. After a few years, it was like, man, I'm just, I'm not thinking about, like I used to wake up in the middle of the night thinking about my scams, yeah. right? Thinking about my cons and, oh, I sorted that problem out so I won't get caught there. And and just all my, 
my mind would go to that in my free time. I'm not even paying attention to it. And it continues to solve the problem of how not to go to jail or how to take this thing, how to achieve this level of whatever, yeah. of, of a thief or a liar. And um, I just wake up and my mind's at peace. Like I wake up singing worship songs. It's and, just, and, it, and it, this, this came from the book. Yeah. From prison to From praise. prison to praise by Merlin Crothers. So I got out and it turns out Merlin was still alive and he was at a church in San Marcos, Red Wing Church or something like that in San Marcos. And I went, I met him twice. Um, and I shared my testimony with him like, hey, I, he was 92 at the time. He's dead now. And met his wife and shared my testimony with him. And he, get, he was such a sweet man and he got excited and his wife tells me, okay, you need to, don't get him too excited because he loves talking about the Holy Spirit. And if you get him too excited, it could kill him. Like he was frail. And, uh, but I got to meet him. I got to share my testimony with him and tell him like this little book that you wrote. Did and, you find out who put that book there? Is there no, any way to know that? No, no way to know. No way to know. Probably the same, like, like seriously, me picking an address at random in Santa Monica and the vendor that I also chose at random on the Connecticut has a wife whose sister lives a block from the, like it was all a setup. That's insane. Yeah, total setup. Total setup. Yeah. And if it hadn't happened, I'd like, there was no way I wasn't going back to prison, even if I got away with it. Like, even if I still got away with, I proved that I wasn't trying to steal anything yeah. and I only got eight months. Like, I would have been back twice by now because there was no Like, there if you no didn't change. end up in that particular cell with right. that particular mattress, with that right. particular book yep. that God sent to you. Yeah. I wouldn't be married now. I've been married almost 12 years now, coming up in a month or That's two. That's your third wife. Yeah. Number three. <laughs> three is the end. <laughs> And so, yeah, so we got, you know, I, I was allowed to start dating after six or seven years and, um, met my wife. We dated, um, we got married, you know, like I was still working it out, like trying to figure out new children with her. Yeah. So we have, a um, my girls are six and eight, almost seven and nine coming up in the next couple of months. And they're like an absolute joy. Um, my older kids, I love them, but I was still a sociopath. So like, I didn't get to encounter. Have they forgiven you? Have yeah, they... yeah. We have a great relationship. Really? They, they live close. Um, my, they're over all the time. Um, oh, that's great. We have a really good relationship. They're all doing great. Like my son is. What about it, your ex-wife? She. Yeah. I mean, we're, we get along fine. Um, we don't really see each other. Um, but like, I don't, I don't have any hard feelings. And I really worked on that. Like, cause you know, she, she knew what was going on when I was doing it. Um, and when I got arrested, like it was no surprise to her what I was doing. I wasn't yeah. hiding anything right. from her, uh, but still she felt like she had to protect herself. And so she did what she had to do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I don't have any hard feelings towards her and have tried to be helpful where I can be. Um, it, it, like, I don't have any, yeah, no hard feelings. Right. And, and if she does, well, I mean, I've tried to be kind every chance I get if they've ever, if there's anything I could ever do to help them, I've tried to do it. So, you know, I And can't. then how did you get to awaken? So we, um, Eden was born. She's uh, six now. We had, I kind of outgrown Summit, at least the teaching, um, but there was a good relationship there, but they lacked, um, they weren't as strong on discipleship, mm. right? So they were really big on on um, evangelism and and arts and moving in the spirit and things like that. But there was there were certain areas where they wouldn't like 
they, I don't feel like they spoke enough into the young men and helping them find discipline and how to behave around women. And, you know, they didn't touch the relationship issue, Yeah, which is not, in my opinion, super healthy. Um, there were, there were issues that came up and, um, and we had kind of outgrown it. Um, so we started <clears throat> when Eden was born, we just pulled back <clears throat> because new baby don't want to take her into service and have people glomming all over her. Yeah. Uh, but it was an, it just worked out as a nice time to exit. Yeah. Um, and then my buddy had also left. So that him and his wife went church hopping and kind of checking out all the different churches and we let them do the legwork. And then they landed at Awaken and then said, Hey, you know, looks like you may want to check this out. So that was at Bressy. Um, so we headed over there and, um, I liked it, right. They were, they were a little behind where Summit was as far as moving in the Holy Spirit and healing and deliverance and things like that. But I could tell that they were on that road. Um, but they were more down the road of discipleship, accountability, and things like that. So I thought, okay, they're strong in this area, and they're headed there in the other one. Um, and so we we settled in there, um, and you know, I had served the whole time at Summit, not just the church, but everybody in it. And so we just went to Awaken, and we kind of, we didn't serve for a little bit. We tithed. Yep. Um, we gave offerings. But I didn't serve for a while. Um, and then um, San Marcos opened up. Um, I did a connect group with the Smiths. And then shortly after that, they invited me onto the ministry team. Um, and I've been doing that for a few years. Um, but I, I like Awaken. I like... Um, I, I did like so I did the Pathfinders um apprenticeship there yeah. right before COVID, which right. is their entrepreneurs group for those yep. that don't know. Great group. Yep. Um which is what launched this podcast. Yeah. Pathfinder for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I when I went through it. Man, I was rolling into podcasts. We'd given like ten thousand dollars to vision builders the year before and I'm rolling in with a contract and I got two other contracts that looked like they were gonna get signed and um we made a pledge three X like my wife and I both prayed separately and got the number to, to pledge division builders. And I thought, well, this shouldn't be a problem because I'm going to have three contracts. And, uh, two weeks before Pathfinder started, I lost all of my, like I didn't get the two and I lost the job I had and I was unemployed all through Pathfinders. Like, wow. Like, uh, and it was certainly God was in that. Like I, I went to go interview for Orange County, the County of Orange. They had 16 open recs for network engineers. I interviewed, they're like, you can do any of these. You'll have an offer in the morning. So I woke up the next morning. I didn't have an offer. I called them up. They're like, overnight, our budget got canceled and all our open recs got canceled. Like we lost our whole budget. So that happened like two or three times. Wow. So I'm like, okay, I know what's going on here. Yes. Right. Like God's going to take us through something and I need to pay attention to what that is. Um, and it really was like, you've been in the gym 15 years. Let's see how you do in the ring. And the opportunity to um, experience disappointment and have people that you think have relationship with ghost you um, when you're going through it, have people, um, you know, people that you thought would be there for you when you went through a hard time weren't, yeah. right? <clears throat> and this could be pastors, it could be friends, it could be whatever. But really it was, how are you gonna think about them? Are you gonna manage your 
mind well enough to still honor them. Like, I understand you're going through it, and I understand they reached out and said, hey, if you need anything, call. And then you call, and they just ghost you. Like, mm. what are you going to think about that? Are you, gonna, are you going to badmouth them in your mind or out loud to somebody else? Are you going to grumble and complain? And, you know, the first things I started reading when I got saved was First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, like I read Samuel, First and Second Samuel. So I read about David. And David has been, uh, how he managed himself and how he handled himself has been a, a real guide light for me. So during that time, you know, David had this, this saying that he said often when Saul was trying to chase him and persecute him. And he said, far be it for me to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. Like, he's the king. I, David was anointed king, and it was seven years he had to run from the existing king, and he had chances to kill him, and he didn't. Because, like, he was anointed king, but Saul was still king. And Saul was anointed first. And he's like, I know that I'm going to be stepping into something, but I'm not raising my hand against who God has appointed. Right. And so, like, I had pastors that reached out and then ghosted. And it's like, far be it for me to raise my hand. Like, I, I know that pastor is anointed. I know that he's here serving God. And it's very quite, it's quite possible God had him ghost me. Yeah, like, totally. Just to see how I was going to react. Yes. Right? Like, are you going to just... Are you just going to trash people or are you going to honor people, right? And so it was really like I'm in an entrepreneur's group and I can't get work. That's, you know, fear of man and, and, and uh, you know, insecurity about being a provider. And, you know, I had to talk to my wife and tell her, like, I'm two and a half months in. And I told her, like, this isn't going to end soon. And she said, well, when do you think you'll find work? And I said, probably about three weeks after our savings runs out. Like we're going to the end of this thing, yeah. and it was it was it was two or three weeks after our savings ran out, and we didn't have money for rent, you know, that I finally found some work. Um, and this is only a couple of years ago. Yeah, this was right before COVID, tw- end of twenty nineteen, going into twenty twenty, and um, you know that was that was a real trial. It was, but man, uh, you know, I came through it so good, right? I I because I knew what I was doing and i was still just grateful to be there like i'm i was a piece of crap right like how am i going to judge somebody else right and i understand how god will take you through something right like i hear people complain all the time that that, you know the devil's taking me through this that's like "Ah, you know it might be god yeah devil's over here like man i didn't do that like that's not me (laughs) quit blaming me right uh but how are you going to know how much you've grown. And I hadn't been out of work in, I hadn't been out of work since I was able to start work. So it'd been like 15 years since I'd been out of work for more than a couple weeks. Yeah. And then I went seven months out of work. Um, but I knew what I was going through. And it was still hard. Like even knowing you're going through it, it's still hard. Like still got to show up and nope, no work this week. And, you know, try to do this thing with these people that are crushing it and um, performing and you're just, can't perform. And um, it was it was tough. But it was but it was awesome. Like I came out of that and started working again and then that job went away quickly. But then after that one I got two really good ones and have stayed stayed working since. And um, it's just been um Like I'm, I'm grateful to be sitting here in my right mind. Nobody's looking for me. 
I can answer my phone. I'm not hiding from anybody. Nobody's looking to show up at my door. Nobody's looking to hurt me. I'm not looking to hurt anybody else. And for 33 years, that was my life. Like, you don't answer your phone and you check before you open your door and you should probably have a weapon with you. And, you know, there's always somebody looking for you because you're always up to something. And you've hurt somebody or you've hurt somebody that knows somebody or, you know, just always ready, always ready. And always, and always thinking about how to take, right? How to, how to get your needs met and understanding that I entered into a life where my needs are met. Like I was delivering pizzas and I didn't have money for gas. Like I would literally have enough gas to get to my first delivery and hope that somebody gave me a tip so that I could go put that dollar or two in the gas tank to go get the next pizza delivered. And just living wow. like day to day, like I know you're going to provide today. Like that was a way different, like, and I didn't go get the money. I didn't take any money out of the till. I didn't steal anything from Domino's. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go sleep with the girl. Like I girl, like I'm, I'm supposed to not date, go serve this church, right? I'm calling my buddy up because there was a girl that I worked with that's like, you want to go do ecstasy and come to the house for a few hours? No, probably not. You know, wow. Uh, nope. Call my buddy up. Like, hey, I, I'm not allowed to go to ecstasy and hang out with this girl for a few hours, right? And he's like, yeah, no, you can't do that. Like, okay, thanks. Just checking. Just checking. Just checking. And so, Brian, what? Yep. Like, this is like. So, for the listeners and watchers, g- give them some hope here. Like, you know, like because you're a living testament. Uh, that there is hope for every anybody. Yeah anybody yeah no matter what no matter what like i was because you were terrible awful awful yeah i was awful i was so awful that you know there's nobody that met me before i got saved whose life is better off from having met me not one single person i've gone back and can think of there's not one single person whose life was better for having known me and that might have continued to be true for a year or two after i got saved right but like now there are people whose lives are better because they know me and how does that make you feel Pretty like, good. You have, like, you, like you actually have feelings. Yeah. Like I, I don't know that I feel one way or another about that. I'm happy. I'm like happy. That's a, that's a feeling, but like, I'm glad that I'm not hurting anybody anymore. Right. Like I don't, I don't like feel overjoyed. I don't feel like lifted up by that, but like, I'm glad I'm not hurting anybody. It's nice to know is how I like to say it. Like, I don't feel one way or another about yeah. it, but it's nice to know that there are people that know me that their lives are better, either because of something I did for them, something I didn't do to them. Um, you know, I actually went and served, and I've been pretty obedient. Um, and I, and I, there's a thing happening. I think it's in Kentucky right now. This revival yes, thing yeah. that's happening there, and and that started because a kid stood up in the middle of a room and confessed, like repented, and said, "I'm doing all of this stuff, and it's poison." and it's killing me, and I don't want to do it anymore. And he was just honest in front of a group of people. And that's what started right. the thing, and it's yeah. still going, right? Yeah. There was a phrase in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're only as sick as your secrets. Um, so anything that you're hiding, anything that you're holding on to, right? Um, the Bible says those that, that seek to, to hold on to their life, they'll lose it. And those that give up their life, they'll find it, right? I gave up everything. Um, and I, in that six years... 
Like I learned how to be just me and him. Like when it talks about, you know, you should love God more than your wife, more than your kid. Like I do. My, I was with God for six and a half years, seven years before I met my wife. And it was me and him running and gunning, rolling and, and, and going through all the stuff and the transformation and learning how to be a person. And when I met my wife and we got married, there was turmoil because she wasn't, she hadn't gone through that period yeah. of, of renewal, let's say. Um, and there was trouble. And when that trouble came, like I ran to him, like I went to my car, I went to worship. My wedding ring says worship all the way around it, right? Because I just, I don't know what's going on out there. But I know that me and him, like, I'm going to be okay. Like, I just get in his presence, and I'm grateful. And so I worship, and I'm just grateful. Like, that book, From Prison to Praise, was just talking about learn how to be grateful in all things. You get a bad diagnosis, thank him for it. Give him an opportunity to move in it. Yeah. Like, you get red lights, don't curse the red lights. Be grateful for the red light. Thank him for it. Thank him for a time to just slow down and talk to him. Like, like the silliest things. But it's been the key to me finding peace, right? Yeah. And for a guy like me, like I get it, man. Your head is going so fast and you end up in a place you didn't think you would and you're doing things that you never thought you'd do and you don't see a way out. And I didn't either. Like I, I, didn't, I didn't think there was a way out to stop. Like I tried to do the right thing and I still ended up facing federal custody and that hope is just like being naked before him and just like you can do it in front of people yeah but you need to do it in front of him right um there's this this part of the bible where it talks about in the end right everyone's going to stand before god and some are going to say but you know i cast out demons i i prophesied i i did this and i did that he's going to say but I didn't know you. Mm. I didn't know you. And I think that no word that he says know you is the same word when it's just like Adam knew Eve, right? When they, when they had intercourse, right? Like, are you sharing yourself with him without reservation? Are you holding anything back from him? Mm. Because all he gets out of this, if God is real and eternity is real, then all he gets out of this is you. He gets a family, right? But if he doesn't know you, like eternity is a long time and I don't want to spend it with a jerk. Yeah. Right? And if you haven't gotten your life right and you're still an egocentric, arrogant prig, well, probably not going to spend eternity with him because he doesn't like that sort of thing. That's right. Right? So you can show up in church every Sunday and you can do whatever. But if your mind isn't renewed, if you're not, like it means something to take every thought captive. When I when I start to when I start, I, I picture in my mind a lot of voices, right? A lot of different, a lot of different. There's a crowd up there. There always has been, yep. right? And I'll be doing something or saying something, and there'll be a voice that pops up that's judgmental or that wants to condemn or that wants to to say something. And I'm, in my mind, I picture myself like, remember the Forrest Gump movie when he's running and there's everybody run the whole crowd running behind yep. him. Yep. I picture like that, and I turn around in my mind. I'm like, well, who said that? Because we don't talk like that up here. I don't allow that sort of thinking to, to go on and take root because the minute I make a judgmental thought about you, I've created division, I can't learn, um, I'm, I'm placing myself ab- above you or whatever else, and I allow this 
whatever that thought is. Same with resentment, same with unforgiveness. Um, so the minute, you, the minute I hear that type of thought come in, I address it. Like, and I literally, in my mind's eye, I turn around and face the crowd of voices in my head. Mm. Right? And I mean, I tell people, like, you really think all those voices in your head are you? Like, what? Wow. You, that, you know, so yeah. there, there's hope, but it takes, <clears throat> it really just takes being honest and, and vulnerable in his presence and saying, like, I don't want to hide anything anymore. Um, I'm, whatever you say, I'm in. Like, I'm all in. And, and I don't, you know, every time he's asked me to give something up, I've given it up. Like we had a we had a house that had a little guest house and I'd work out there and it was a place I could worship and when there was turmoil with my wife or whatever, I could just go out there and close the door and put on worship and it was my sanctuary. Mm. And then God said, Hey, your mother in law is about to lose her place to live. I think you should move her in here. This is our place, God. This is the only place that I have that I find peace with you. Yeah, I know. Give it to her. Okay. Stay obedient. That was about the length of the conversation, right? My wife had to have a much longer conversation about her mom moving in, but it's like, well, take it up with Holy Spirit. And if, if you think Holy Spirit's saying something different, you have him tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, what a story, man. This, yeah. is, this is incredible, dude. Thank you. Like, like I just, I, I know that my life is, uh, you've made a positive impact on my life. I barely know you. We've interacted a handful of times, but... You've made a major impression on me in a positive way. Not sure if that makes you feel good or not, but uh, it, it does. Hopefully, like I'm, you're I, happy. I, I do get, I do get happy. I do. Uh, you know, I'm. In a sense, I'm proud of who I've become. Yep. Right. Um. I not not like pride, pride, but like, I know that I become a person that doesn't hurt people anymore, and that makes me happy. Right. Like, yeah. I know that I don't have to be on guard that I'm going to accidentally. Or, or whatever, just end up in a mess like I was before. Like wow. I used to just end up in crime for, or in a bad spot. And I get there so fast. Like as quick as people spiral into anxiety yeah. or whatever, I would just be in crime or taking or, yeah. or whatever that fear, that fear thing is. And um, it's been 20 years of, um, I just celebrated 20 years because uh, 2003 was Dude. when I got arrested, January. Unbelievable, bro. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's... Um... I'm honored that you came in. Well, I appreciate you having me. It's been a pleasure and honor. Never had the chance to really do this before, so yeah. it was it was pretty good. I hope it came out all right. It hope came out great. I hope Ladies everybody's and, blessed by it. Dude, I love it, man. I love it. Thank you so much for coming in. Real Deal Talk. That's a wrap, baby. Brian Tinney. Uh. <laughs>